WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 324. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from the APG headquarters building in a northern Atlanta suburb. Today's show was recorded on the 18th of May, 2018. Today's episode, some airplane crashes and more cracked windows. More news, your feedback, and this week's plane tale. Go ahead, take the controls. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seatbacks in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 324 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guys show. It's an aviation podcast where we talk about uh, what was new in the aviation news during or between the shows in the last week. We also cover a lot of your fantastic feedback and helping me to do that from her lakeside college, <laughs> lakeside cottage, unless she has a new college going on there. I'm not sure. But, uh, uh, Dr. Steph, she's a marathon runner a skydiver, a uh, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. Thank you for the wonderful intro as always. No, I'm not at a college. I'm in fact at my cottage, if you want to call it that, here in soggy South Carolina. It's been uh, kind of a miserable weather week. Um, So not much in the way of outdoor activities happening, no flying this week. Um, But that's okay. We need the rain getting some of the uh, pollen and other stuff out of the air. Yeah. I think for those of us who suffer from allergies, it's definitely a a welcome change. Also joining us from his country estate outside of London, a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Hello there, Jeff, and hi, everybody. It's great to be back on the show. Looking forward to a nice one. And in contrast to the miserable conditions over there, we've had a great week. Excellent. And joining us from his stately southern mansion in Smyrna, Georgia, barbecue master, bourbon connoisseur, motorcycle riding pontoon boat skipper and pilot for a major u.s legacy carrier captain dana woohoo yeah now it's official i actually have the captain hat on not the captain hat but a captain hat uh past my check rides past week we'll get into that a little bit later but uh here in atlanta i don't know about you jeff but i'm lining them up two by two to get on the arc because it just doesn't want to stop raining here so it hasn't been bad here today. It's just been a little sprinkly here and there, but uh, definitely yeah. looks like it could come down torrentially any moment. All right. Uh, good to see you again, Dana. I uh, just saw you last night, and uh, we'll talk about that in uh, a few minutes. And also joining us, that's our special 
guest host music there, sitting right next to Dana in his stately southern mansion in Smyrna, Georgia, a gentleman named John Kramer, and I'm going to let Dana tell you who this guy is. All right, well, a little background on uh, Captain Kramer, who's sitting next to me. He is another captain, has uh, been flying for a long time, and a really good buddy of mine, uh, professional broadcaster, as a matter of fact. And uh, I'm going to let him tell you about his background and uh, why he's uh, an absolute pleasure to have sitting here with us on the program today. Been flying since uh, 1990. Uh, got my first taste of flying when I was in Vietnam um, in a backseat of an L-19, if you know what that is. It's a little bird dog Cessna Oh yeah, uh, for forward air control. And uh, that gave me the bug. But I was an enlisted man, and uh, enlisted uh, cannot fly uh, in the military unless you have a four-year college degree, uh, unless you're going to fly helicopters, which is a different story altogether. So I had to wait until after I got out and got enough money together to, uh, to learn how to fly on my own, and I did that in 1990. I have since amassed 4,700 uh, hours, give or take, um, done 147 angel flights, uh, I worked for a, uh, a small um, charter company for two and a half years, uh, flew out of Hartsfield, which was uh, rather unique, flying two tens out of, in and out of Hartsfield during the, uh, the two pushes of the day. Uh, did that back in the, uh, in the early 2000s. I've been a broadcast engineer technician uh, for about the last 18 years. I was a DJ on the air. I've umpired professional and college baseball for 38 seasons, so I I've got my finger in a lot of different pots. Wow! And cool. what's what's the what is the most honorable thing that you've done with your flying career? Oh, the angel flights, uh, without a doubt. Uh, my most memorable out of the 147 missions uh, that that I ran was uh, I did five missions for Katrina relief. Uh, and the last one I did brought an entire family of four in a Cessna 182, uh, a, a mother and father and two kids, uh, from uh, a little airfield in Mississippi, which is the closest we could get to uh, Louisiana. Uh, with uh, Each one of them had nothing more than a gym bag, and that's all they had left because they were completely wiped out. So that's the most memorable of uh, all the angel flights. Wow, what what a great way to use your flying uh, license there, Wes. Thank you for doing all of that. That's amazing work. Appreciate it. Thank you. I get as much out of it as they do, believe me. When you were flying the uh, bird dog, um, I don't know what time frame that was, but did you ever fly with a guy named Mrazek? No, I did not. I flew with Colonel Burroughs. Uh, he was our uh, our commander. Uh, I just sat in the back seat, and he would mm -hmm. turn the airplane over to me. First time he did that, it scared the willies out of me because he said, uh, well, it's all yours. And I said, all mine what? And he said, <laughs> well, that's sticking between your legs. You better grab it because we were in a, a left dive at the time. And I said, well, what do I do? You know, this was my first lesson. If you, if you, This was back in 1966, uh, back when Vietnam uh, War was just escalating. And uh, no, uh, Colonel Burroughs uh, was the only person, Wayne Burroughs was the only person that I ever flew with. 
I just asked because uh, I used to fly with a guy all the time when I flew the C-141 Starlifter at Travis and uh, uh, one of the guys, uh, Mara- uh, Major Morazic at the time, um, he was uh, a bird dog guy in mm-hmm. Vietnam. And uh, the reason why it comes to mind is we were having a discussion as we were flying our airplane down to Grenada back in 1983 after having gone through the uh, briefing where they were showing us the shoulder-mounted um, ground to air missiles uh, the what is it called the sam 5 sam 7 um and uh, i was a little concerned about that because you know we were in strategic airlift not uh tactical airlift and i asked him you know what he thought might happen if they fired one of those things at us and he said uh well he said i've been shot down a couple of times in the bird dog and uh so he he kind of told me that he thought it you know if we were lucky it would hit the outboard engine and the, uh, if it didn't take out the inboard engine as well, we'd be okay. We had no armament on that airplane whatsoever. Uh, it, we, was, uh, we had four smoke rockets, two on each wing, and that was it. Uh, we marked targets for the, uh, for the jets coming in with their bombs, mm-hmm. and that was our job, and then get out of the way. And uh, if we were below the 1,500-foot the limit, we were subject to... Uh, to carbine, even, you know, any kind of rifle fire. So we had to be above 1,500 feet. That was the magic altitude. Well, Major Morazic always told me that they were very reluctant to shoot at the bird dog because if they did, they knew that they were going to suffer uh, some punishment for it um, from the uh, the F-4s or oh, whatever yeah. they could call in. So they kind of left you all alone usually. Uh, I never got shot at, but uh, uh, several of our pilots were hit. And, uh, uh, one, one didn't make it. So, oh, sorry to hear. Well, we're so glad to have you with us on today's show. And I'm sure you're going to be able to add a lot, uh, especially when we start talking about the news and the feedback. Um, all right. You, you, um, you know, you know, one of the funniest things with, for me, with, with John, uh, other than listen to all his great, uh, stories and, um, a uh, real good friendship that we've had for a long time now. He owned his own airplane, seven five nine kilo Alpha, and I know the the, the tail number by heart because I've have a lot of time in it too. But how many hours did you amass in that, John? About twenty six hundred. About twenty six hundred hours in his own airplane, yeah. and I used to do his BFRs for him. And I've never seen anybody in their own aircraft get so nervous in my entire oh, life when I he's got a friend rides. sitting next to him trying to help him <laughs> out to a that's, a, that's only natural. <laughs> that oh, was always man. the funniest. I wouldn't. That just means that you're before. invested in it, and you you know you're you just yeah. have high expectations of yourself, and you want to do it. Yeah, I think he was yeah. nervous about the fact that you might have some gas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there is that issue. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> all right, awesome. Okay, so uh, what we do next, John, is we catch up with what everything, what everyone has been doing in the previous week, and uh, that uh, a lot of times entails talking about meeting up with uh, others in the APG community. But uh, before we talk about the couple of meetups that I have the privilege of attending this week, uh, I'd like to start with Steph. What have you been doing this past week? I have been here. I have been working quite a bit. And I thought maybe there was going to be a meetup with a community member, and then I never heard anything back. So I'm not sure what happened there. But oh, somebody stood you up. Well, it just there was a hey, maybe possibly, and then I don't know. So I'm sorry if I I don't think I missed any messages or anything. But um, anyway, I just yeah, just a 
a quiet week here. I actually really don't have a whole lot to catch everyone up on. So I'll keep mine short and sweet and can talk about more interesting things. Well, uh, let's move on to Captain Nick. Anything uh, interesting happened with you this past week? Well, nothing really of an aviation uh, uh, nature, I'm afraid. Uh, However, I've been reasonably busy uh, building the new studio for... uh, uh, my photography and, I guess, audio work will be down there as well. Um, decoration is almost done. The, the carpet went in today. Um, so that's looking, uh, coming on very well. Um, I got together with Pilot Pip and Cap now a little earlier in the week uh, for Plane Safety Podcast. And that was a fun one. The first time I've been on the show, so it was uh, uh, a real privilege and a pleasure, and I can c- certainly uh, recommend it. I, I don't know uh, what uh, Pip's le- uh, listenership is like, but uh, he always does uh, fascinating shows, on usually on a theme, and uh, funny enough, the theme show was a uh, go-around. You can always go around if it don't Did, uh... I don't recall him playing the sound clip on uh, his show. No, I think he assumes you have exclusive privileges. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I don't have privileges with this either. (laughs) Well, I can say it's piracy of it. Exactly right. The uh, the used without permission. (laughs) (laughs) The songwriter and performer are great friends of ours. Um, what else happened? Uh, I met up with Adam Spink today. He had his lovely uh, dog Betty. And we went for a uh, walk together. I'm just putting together some photographs now to give him because I uh, uh, did a little practice uh, photo shoot for uh, for him. And uh, they're looking very nice. Uh, and the only other thing I think to uh, mention is that uh, really looking forward to the meetup on Tuesday, only a few days ago. So it's uh, the 22nd, Tuesday the 22nd, 10.30 in the morning. We're starting, uh, finishing up around 3.30 in the afternoon. And, of course, it's at the wonderful uh, Royal Air Force Museum at Hendon uh, in North London. And uh, anyone who can make it there, you'd be welcome to join us. We're going to have fun, I think. Well, sounds good, Nick. And Dana, uh, seems like I just recently saw you. Yeah, and I think you'll be playing something a little later on, hint, hint, that uh, we spent uh, yesterday together. I got to ride with Mario Jeff. Man, that, that man in, really enjoys riding around his brand new new Honda Accord and <laughs> testing how fast it can go because not only is he an excellent driver, but he loves the pedal to the metal, and, and I kind of like that. I mean, it's fun. I'm saying it in a good way. So yeah, we did. Gotta, we did you got to exercise those paddle shifters. Absolutely, got to keep the engine lubricated in all all the corners of the cylinders. So right. Um, well, uh, what's been going on with me for the last week? Well, last week I wasn't here. Uh, had uh, a little bit of uh, issue going on with my foot. Had uh, me uh, kind of in a not so good place uh, while I was in training. And I mentioned training. If for those folks that uh, listen to the crew logs, uh, I do have a uh, extensive uh, outline of what I've been doing in training, which I think Jeff is going to put up the last one here, hopefully by the end of today or tomorrow. Um, but anyways, the uh, the moral of the story is, as you can probably not see, but I am wearing a captain's hat. I am now officially, as of Sunday, 
minus my OE operational experience, now officially a captain. Uh, what a fantastic! Yeah, brilliant. Well done, Dana. Excellent. But the most important people to know that noise are payroll. Are you getting the money yet? <laughs> well, no. I called them yesterday, HR. and they said uh, I won't see that until the middle of June. I said thanks. What? Yeah, yeah. It takes them a little while to get caught up, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm particularly excited. I was supposed to be on OE. Um, right now, operational experience with a Czech airman uh, on a four-day trip. Unfortunately, unfortunately, however you want to look at it, uh, the sim broke on me last Saturday when I was doing my check ride. I had an issue with the rudder pedals, which I really highlight in the uh, in the crew logs, which should be out any day now. Um, and uh, the, the long and short of it, we had to put the sim down, had maintenance issue with it. And could not finish my check ride on Saturday, which I was all amped up, ready to do and complete. I was just on firing all 12 cylinders. I was ready to get it done. Uh, so it didn't happen. They called me as I was on the way to the lake on Sunday. I did say okay. on the way to the lake for a nice relaxing day on Mother's Day with a boat full of people, including three mothers. And they called me about uh, 1230 in the afternoon and said, yeah, we have you in the sim at 6.30 tonight to finish up. I was like, are you effing kidding me? <laughs> so more long story short, I had to go in and had to get down to the simulators, kicked everybody off the boat by four, ran home, took a quick shower, threw on some clothes, and went down. And all I had left was to complete my LOE aloft. There are many different ways to say it. Basically, you're flying from point A to point B. They give you some type of ab abnormal situation between the two, and you got to coordinate, be you know, crew co coordination, show your leadership skills, et cetera, et cetera. And I did that, and uh, uh, the instructor came up and said, "Congratulations, Captain Colton, you are now officially captain at Acme." So uh, it was very nice. Went up to the room, and he uh, then reached into his bag and handed me what he said was the last thing that Acme would ever buy for me as a uniform piece, which is my wings. Uh, so it was very rewarding. Um, I'm now just waiting to go to operation, go to OE, which will now start next Tuesday. So I'm kind of chomping at the bit to sit in that seat and, and get out there and start flying. Um, I will do a four-day trip next week, and then I will then be off for another week and a half and then do another four trip over the first weekend of June. Um, so excited. Uh, that's all I can say. It's just really uh, uh, that point in my life that I've tried to get to. Now I'm here, and it's that pinnacle. So I don't know what else I have to look forward to now. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really only kidding. Okay, I'm we're, really we're so excited for you. I know it's been a long time coming in a journey in the making here. So congratulations. You deserve all of it. Thank and you. Now you get to enjoy it. So. Yeah, I, Seth, I agree with you and, and earned all of it too. And it took a lot of work, a lot of study. And that's kind of why I wasn't really here last week is I just was, I mean, I, I was doing 10, 12-hour days and trying to get this all into my head and making sure I was as ready as could be. And it really, you know, the both, <laughs> all right, I'll say this. When I was in, in for my oral exam, uh, which is a systems validation, the instructor said to me, obviously you've been studying because I had not missed one question yet. And he said, yeah, I can, I can tell you've been studying. I said, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. He said, all right, so now I'm going to start asking you some PhD questions. 
about this airplane because clearly you know this airplane. And uh, so he asked me a few questions, and he still couldn't stump me. He says, all right, what gives here? Because obviously you're not a guy that hasn't had any experience with this airplane. You know way too much. So I ended up having to tell him that I was an instructor previously at Acme. And so um, I was just that well prepared that it was really um, a lot of work. And I worked really hard, and I'm very proud of what I accomplished. Um, and I, I got to be honest, I mean, out there to the community, uh, I cannot thank each and every one of you enough for all your support, especially past this past year because it was a long wait. Kind of wish I didn't wait this long, didn't know it was going to have to wait this long. Um, but uh, the moral story is, is each and every one of you that have reached out and, and said congratulations and moral support, you can do this. Uh, you know, every little bit of it helped, all the advice from Captain Jeff, Captain uh, Colonel Jeff, Captain Nick, Steph, all my friends, uh, just really, I can't say how thankful I am for everything and all the support. So that really means a lot to me. And thank you. Just all around, thank you. What is well deserved, Jaina. Well thank done. You. I appreciate it. Very good. And Richard Adams says, richly deserved. Pun intended, I'm sure. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I can't wait for that paycheck. I get a loan <laughs> payment, boat payment, motorcycle payment, house payment, <laughs> yeah. captain payment. All right. Um, Steph, you were uh, trying to uh, tell me that there's something that we should or you want to talk yes, about. Uh, uh, Jeff okay. Ward in our uh, chat room right now uh, wanted me to let everyone know about a uh, meeting that they're having for their EAA Chapter uh, 106 out of Lawrence, Massachusetts, at their regular chapter meeting on June 1st. He's going to be giving a presentation about aviation podcasts and specifically about um, the, actually, to, he said, to demonstrate the social aspect of podcasts. So interesting right. stuff. If you're in the uh, vicinity of Lawrence, Massachusetts on June 1st, go attend their regular chapter meeting. I wish I was in the vicinity on June first. That'd be fun to yeah, attend. To, uh, is anyone going to record it? I'd love to listen to the audio uh, or, the, or a video. Potentially, and maybe he can um, point us uh, in that direction. That would be very cool. So, excellent. Well, thank you very much, Steph. And let's see. Oh, um, so you hear us talking about uh, at the end of the show. Usually, we talk about social media, and uh, one of the quasi-social media platforms that we use is Slack. And uh, one, one of the difficult things in the past for people to join Slack was they had to have a Twitter account and then they had to contact Hillel via Twitter, you know, H-I-1-1-E-1. And uh, some, some people had some issues with that. And then finally, boom, light bulb went off in Hillel's head and he goes, why don't we do a, uh, an email like uh, an airline pilot guy email alias that will get sent to me and then I can uh, get people all signed up that way. And I went... Why didn't you think of that before? <laughs> so uh, brilliant, I guess, is what we should uh, play the sound effect right now. Brilliant. Um, so if you haven't yet joined the Slack team, please uh, send an email to slack at airlinepilotguide.com. And that way, Hillel can get in contact with you and get you all signed up for that. And I'm trying to be better about uh, being on Slack a little bit more because that's one of the prime ways that we uh, coordinate for meetups. And uh, so if you want to uh, go to meetups and uh, other APG community related stuff like 
Jeff Ward's presentation at his local EAA chapter. Make sure you uh, sign up with the Slack team. And uh, speaking of meetups, on uh, this last trip that I just took, a four-day trip, on the first day ended up in Norfolk, Virginia, and somebody on Slack said, hey, Jeff, I noticed that you're going to be in Norfolk, Virginia, and was wondering if you might be interested in a meetup. And this gentleman, uh, his name, Joe Driver, and he said, I happen to be driving from Myrtle Beach to, I think, Baltimore, Maryland, and, or Washington, D.C., actually. And he said, Norfolk is right on the way, and I'm going to be in that area right about the time that you're going to be there for your layover. And I said, well, absolutely, we'll do that. And so I met up with Joe, and then I put out a quick uh, notification on Slack and Facebook and Twitter that uh, we were going to meet up uh, in downtown Norfolk, Virginia, and we went to a place called Saltine. And as usual, I had my Zoom recorder with me, and I actually remembered to push the record button. It's another APG face-to-face, person-to-person, or what we like to call a meetup at uh, the Saltine, which is a weird name for a restaurant, uh, in Norfolk, Virginia, where there are lots of wonderful people. And uh, I want to start with Joe Driver. He's the one that I'm going to blame for this whole meetup, person-to-person, face-to-face. He saw that was going to be in uh, Norfolk, Virginia, and uh, said, hey, let's get together. And I said, absolutely. I mean, I got to eat and drink anyway, right? So might as well do it with somebody that shares the same kind of uh, interests that I have. And so here's Joe. Hey, thank you there, Jeff. Uh, it's great to be here with you and everyone tonight uh, here at Saltine. I think they use the name just to make you maybe more uh, thirsty. Um, and we've had a few IPAs, which was great. And we've talked a lot of uh, great uh, aviation stuff. And uh, it's been a wonderful, uh, wonderful evening. So uh, thanks for uh, helping me out and showing up here. My pleasure, completely. And uh, let's uh, go over here to the Van Ram Brothers. We have a East Coast and a West Coast representative, and uh, Mark uh, claims that he is the the better looking of the two. So here's Mark. Thank you, Jeff. Um, Mark Van Ram from Hampton, Virginia, uh, the ret- only retired Van Ram brother, and uh, I'm having a great time hanging out in Norfolk. Okay, then I think you should pass the uh, microphone over to uh, Mr. Bill Bates. Thanks, Jeff, and uh, thanks, Mark and Joe. Uh, It's good to be here uh, tonight. Once again, we are with Captain Jeff. APGers, if you haven't taken the time, you've got to take the time to meet up with Captain Jeff and the wonderful APG community. And we are just thrilled. We've had a great time tonight. Met uh, some folks here, and uh, Joe uh, got to meet him. And then Mark, uh, he embarrassed me because, uh, you know, he's top fit, in shape, biker. And uh, I'm sitting here with my puny little crutch and, uh, you know, just can make it to the car. So uh, it's been good conversation. Thank you so much for your invite, Captain Jeff. And this is my lovely wife, Beverly which I think uh, Captain Jeff give her the mic. Well, once again, my job is to bring a little female balance to the show and to this conversation. And I have to tell you, we've met some more wonderful APG guys. 
and it's just a pleasure. Every time I meet them, they have great stories to tell, and we just enjoy our time together. It's the highlight of my day and my week and probably my month. So, Captain Jeff, you're the man. We enjoyed it. Well, thank you. That really makes my day. And uh, you're the highlight of my month as well, Beverly. Wonderful person. Yes. So, anyway. Hey, you know, go over to uh, APG or uh, let's say, what is it called? AirlinePilotGuy.com. I put my schedule up there. If you see that I'm going to be somewhere near you, contact me. Let me know you want to do a meetup and let's get together and have some fun. This is Captain Jeff signing off from Saltine in Norfolk, Virginia. Back to you, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. I'm a bit jealous. Yeah, it was a good time. Good place to go, by the way. They're such um, nice people. Oh, yeah. Really uh, Bill and Beverly are just wonderful people. They're fantastic and, people. So, And Mark is uh, as well. And uh, Joe, met him for the first time. And uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you for uh, kind of, you know, instigating that meetup, Joe. And uh, then on, let's see, the next couple of days, I kind of laid low. I was in... Uh, uh, where was I? I was in Cleveland one of the nights and then, uh, Dulles International one of those nights. Uh, almost had a meetup with Tuba Tony, but, uh, he is in the downtown DC area, uh, the uh, District of Columbia, not way out by the Dulles International Airport. So it didn't really work out for him. So maybe next time to Batoni. And, uh, on Thursday, got home yesterday and, uh, got a message from, uh, Kansas City Matt, KC Matt, again via Slack, and he said, uh, hey, I'm in Alpharetta, which is basically where I live, just north of, I mean, just north of where I live. Uh, I'm in Roswell, but Alpharetta is kind of combined together, uh, Roswell, Alpharetta. Um, and he said, if you're, if you're available on Thursday night, let's get together. And I said, absolutely, let's do it. And so we ended up going to a place called Lazy, no, not Lazy, Loyal, Q, and Brew, and again, I took the opportunity to make it a, a full APG meetup for anybody that might be available uh, for Thursday evening. And a big gang of folks ended up uh, showing up for that. And I recorded some audio uh, there as well. It is Thursday, the 17th of May. And we are, I am, along with some other people, in Alpharetta, Georgia. It's probably so appropriate to uh, start with this uh, great meetup with somebody who I always refer to as my neighbor to the north in Alpharetta. That's Ray Williams. So, Ray, you have the honor of starting off this quick meetup audio. Good, Jeff. You said quick, so I don't have to talk too long. Great to have Alpharetta on the APG map at long last. And it's been a great evening with lots of aviation talk and Hearing stuff the average passenger never wants to know. Thanks. Cheers, guys. Yeah. Okay. Now, Tony is going to talk. Hi, this is Tony. I fly for Flintstone Airways, and I'm enjoying a Brontosaurus burger here at the Loyal Q. And enjoying the uh, other folks that are here as well. Barney, Fred, and uh, Wilma, <laughs> the whole gang. Very good. You didn't need any help. Hey, this is Matt out of Kansas City. I thought I'd flip the script on Jeff a little bit and join him on his home turf instead of out in the wild. 
But uh, congratulations to Dana on his new promotion. Great to uh, meet up with him and the rest of the crew here and talk about some airplanes. Say hi, Dave. Hi, Dave Blake. Nice to meet you guys. Friend of Dana's. I work for Spirit Airlines. Awesome. All right, do I work for Acme Airlines? Acme Yellow. Acme Yellow. Yeah, I'm Acme Yellow. <laughs> yeah, you didn't hear the other one. Well, everybody knows this voice, and uh, it's first officer. Well, no, he can't say that anymore. It's now Captain Dana. It's my first get-together after upgrading to captain, so it's pretty uh, pretty exciting, and I'm glad to be here with everybody, and I'm going to go ahead and pass on the uh, microphone over to my right here, Elton, because everybody has, is very used to hearing my voice, so here you go. Hi, it's Earl of Atlanta. I just came to congratulate Captain Jeff, who's once in a while pronunciation challenged on absolutely nailing the pronunciation of the home of Willow Run Airport, Y-P-S-I-L-A-N-T-I, Ypsilanti. Way to go. Thank you very much. At, uh, on that particular name, I, I, got, I hit the 50% barrier, the level, so that's a good thing. Would you like to say something to our podcast audience, Eric? Hello, podcast audience. Say it again. I didn't have the microphone in front of your face. Hello, podcast audience. There you go. <laughs> you want to talk? No? Okay. Eric has this wonderful, beautiful family here with us, and uh, he's a friend uh, of Dana, and uh, it was a very nice meeting them, and uh, they're beautiful little girls. All right, that's it. We're here uh, in the middle of the week, Thursday, having great uh, fun talking airplanes and really mostly other stuff. And uh, that's it for me. Back to you, Jeff. Thank you. So, Flintstone Air, huh? <laughs> well, we all know how they get airborne. So, feet out the bottom. It's, a lot, it's a lot of exercise, but, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> one way to stay fit. I, I just want to add one comment to that. I, did, I should have put it on the tape there, but I didn't. I was uh, very uh, honored that that uh, last night sitting at the table was the second, uh, third and second last captains I flew with as a first officer. And that had never happened. And the funny part is, is that they are separated by one person in seniority. So, and one person at the table last night. And one person Ray at the Williams. table. So uh, <laughs> really, uh, really awesome to be there with both uh, Tony and, and, and Jeff. Uh, and it would have been com complete if Gary was there, but I know he was nah, flying. Nah, ruined so everything we didn't want if that. he had been there. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah. By the way, uh, if you're in the Roswell Alpharetta area and you're looking for some good barbecue, this place nailed it. Um, really good stuff. Delicious. They don't hold back on the smoke. Good stuff. They don't hold back on how much they charge for bourbon either. Well, I mean, you didn't have to order the most expensive bourbon on the menu. No, that there. was the most economical oh, really? good bourbon. <laughs> well, you didn't have to have three. You can't, you can't compromise your standards just because of the cost. And you're a captain anyway, so don't complain. That's right. fine, yeah. You make yeah, the big ones now. Did, did we all forget the beginning of the show, the pa Captain Paycheck's still not here yet? Nah, it, it'll while. get there again. It's only money, Details. It's only yeah, money. your credit card still works, doesn't it? It sure does. Very good point. <laughs> Excellent point. <laughs> All right. Anything else we want to uh, share? Talk about? <clears throat> wow. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> I, I hit. I hit the mic switch. I'm sorry. It didn't go down. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs>
thought something is blowing up here. What is that? When you push the cough switch, that makes you cough, right? Yes, exactly. I pushed the switch. John actually saw me hit it. It just didn't. Yeah, he did. Hey, John. Uh, don't let him hit the cough switch one. again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's Ouch. awesome. All right. It's, it's, good it's a professional show. It's, it's a professional show. Yes. It's a family right. show. Too. So uh, I guess we don't have anything else. It's time now to uh, move on to one of our fun things to talk about, which of course is the coffee fund. And here it is. Jeff Smith. Java Jive. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Okay, the coffee fund is your way to support the show financially if you have the resources to do so. And uh, again, just a reminder, if you need your money to pay for food and drink and clothing and shelter, please don't contribute to the fund. But for those of you out there who are have some extra change in your pocket and you want to uh, send it our way, we do appreciate it. And since the last episode, Chris Randall uh, used the classic method, as did Frank O'Connor, so thank you, uh, both of you, for using the PayPal or the uh, Coffee Fund Classic method. And we have another way to do it. Uh, you can become a patron via patreon.com. And we have a new producer, Eero L, and a new executive producer, Amir Naruzi. So thank you for joining up via patron to become a patron of our show. If you're interested in learning about how you can be part of our Coffee Fund cadre, please head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. Thank you very much for your contributions. Stand by for news. Okay, this is kind of breaking news. Uh, this just happened a couple of hours ago. A global Aerolinius Damoge Boeing 737-200 on behalf of Cubana de Aviación Registration uh, X-Ray Alpha Uniform Hotel Zulu performing flight 972 from Havana to Holguin, Cuba with 104 passengers and nine crew lost height shortly after takeoff at 12.08 local time, contacted a house, trees, and a railway track near position, blah, 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 and burst into flames. Emergency services are responding. Three passengers have been taken to hospitals in critical condition and are believed to be the only survivors. Cuban authorities confirmed an accident at Havana Airport. There is an intense fire. A massive response by emergency services has been dispatched. Uh, later, authorities reported that three passengers were taken to hospitals. Okay, that was already talked about in a previous paragraph. Let's see. Um, basically, not much more information at this point because it just recently happened. 
Um, but it looks like, uh, sadly, another tragedy, and uh, we're really pulling for those passengers that uh, apparently have survived, and we hope that they survive their uh, critical injuries. Yeah, not a lot of information yet, obviously. Um, so certainly we'll be talking about this in the weeks to come, I'm sure. 737-200, though. Wow. Yeah. And I think uh, on a, another uh, very popular aviation podcast that I happened to be listening to earlier today, Plane Talking UK, uh, there was a, a discussion about that. And I believe that Carla said that this airplane was uh, built in 1988, 30 years old. Uh, but again, you know, that's not necessarily... No. Uh, indicative of, you know, uh, an airplane that's too old because uh, Dana and I know that we fly uh, a lot of airplanes out there that were manufactured in that year and uh, mm-hmm. just a couple of years past that and they're perfectly safe and fine airplanes. So I'm just, I can't remember the last time I saw a 737-200. Yeah, I think that mostly you don't see them in the U.S. major yeah. airlines because they are just not very fuel efficient. No. Well, and, you know, a lot of it comes down to the maintenance. I mean, mm-hmm. if you maintain an aircraft, you can fly. I mean, look, you still got DC-3s out there still flying around. Mm-hmm. So exactly. if you maintain an aircraft, then then they can fly for a very long time. So, you know, I, I don't know. I, it, I just just noticed that there's been a huge trend this year versus last year of uh, more more accidents. I don't know if you, if, if you guys are picking up on it or feeling that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I mean, after this, last, this year year was just, was, last year was the safest year for year ever. aviation ever um you know and this year is not you know we're only five months in not off and, to a great start and yeah not off to a great start at all but yeah you know as, as you guys said there's more to come out about this we may or may not know because it's in cuba yeah hopefully they'll be open and uh um transparent when it comes to the investigation so yeah, we'll it's see. amazing how the pendulum swings. We like to think we've got to a level of safety where, you know, accidents will be extremely rare. Well, it doesn't usually work that way. Nope. Yeah, you can't uh, rest on your laurels, right? Certainly not, Jeff. Or your hardies. <laughs> or your yannies. Yannies, yeah. Yannies, there we go. <laughs> Have you guys heard that? It oh, yeah. everybody crazy. <laughs> oh, you got to love the internet, don't you? Yes. What are you guys hearing? I'm hearing Laurel. What are you? I hear Laurel. Yanni. You Laurel. hear a Yanni, huh? How do you hear a Yanni? I tried and to actually, listen. It's like, it's like Yanni is what it sounds yeah. like. Yanny. I tried to hear a Yanni and I couldn't hear it. I can't hear Laurel. I've tried all the different, like, where they've wow. filtered out different high tones, low tones. I still just hear Yanni. Would someone Men- please medicine? explain to us from this side of the pond what the <laughs> hell you're talking about? Hey, now they know about it over there, too. Come on. It's a worldwide phenomenon. You can't pull that one. Pull that card. Let me see if I can uh, find the uh, find it on uh, YouTube. Okay. Let's I'll be see. very interested to see how many females think it's Yanni and how many males think, think it's Laurel. Because I think it's a might be a gender issue there, too. Really? Might be. Dress incident of 2015, the internet has provided a never ending stream of optical illusions. Like the shiny, okay, enough of that. Which is cool Let's get way. to it. Let's get so to this it. audio clip that sounds like okay. Yanny to some people, but sounds like Laurel to others. Take a listen for yourself. Laurel. Laurel. The clip went viral when at Chloe Couture tweeted it. And the. How in the world yeah. can you hear Yanny? Yanny. What? Yeah, that's all it says. <laughs> it's so clearly Laurel. Well, it's funny. The first time I heard that, it sounded like a blend of the two, and then it turned to Laurel. 
Um, so I'm just wondering, uh, it's the way your, your brain processes. Yeah, yeah it has to do it with is. how many high high tones, I think, or high pitches. And how many beers you've had. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's it, that, of course. Yeah, I don't hear, I guess, yeah, clearly my frequency ranges, the higher frequency ranges are, are gone. So maybe that's where you're hearing the Yanny. Because yeah. your, your hearing's better. I don't know. I've tried. I've tried so hard to hear Laurel. Like I've gone to where they've like filtered out different frequencies, and I, it just it doesn't matter. High frequencies, low frequencies. I I'm gonna try it again, uh, staff. Okay, listen carefully. Okay, Laurel. <laughs> Yanny. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. Well, I think everyone's maybe sick of this. Wait, so. hold on, step back, because when I just listened to that audio recording that you just played, I heard Yanni. <laughs> I was really hearing nothing but Laurel. Yep. But that recording and that pitch was Yanni. Wow. Uh, no, that's weird. I can't wait to listen to the podcast 20,000 Hertz and wait to uh, see what they say about it. <laughs> yes. That'll be interesting. Okay. Well, <laughs> how do we get off this track? What, resting what, what on our that? laurels. Oh, I, yeah, resting on our laurels. Yeah, that was my fault. Sorry. <laughs> okay. We're just trying to be topical, you know. Yeah, the, yeah. You know, oh, we're, we're hip. Just we're like very the kids. hip, except me, of course. Yeah, we, you know, we kids. It, it may go downhill now. <laughs> what about that? Good. Uh, not any further, please. <laughs> All right. So let's uh, go to the next item in the news folder, which is, of course, probably your first item, uh, A. Uh, an in-flight scare on KLM flight caused by lithium-ion battery. And starts off with a quote, At no time were passengers or crew in danger. Always a reassuring phrase when a flight goes awry. But... The statement put out by the Dutch airline KLM about Tuesday night's flight 809 from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur raised concerns once again about the dangers posed to aviation by lithium batteries. I surmise that just about every passenger was carrying at least one device, a smartphone, tablet, or laptop powered by a LI ion battery. Yanni Laurel. While the uh, Boeing 777 was at 39,000 feet over the Bay of Bengal, Bengal? Bengani. A passenger's mobile phone overheated, reported KLM, and smoke accumulated in the cabin. The crew handled the situation well, and the captain opted to land the aircraft as a precautionary measure. Some passengers with time on their hands may have been delighted to make an unexpected lunchtime arrival on the beautiful island of Phuket, but I bet most were not. Anyway, the article goes on to talk about the incident. Yes, just one more case, and I think that we're going to probably see this more frequently as time goes on. What do you think? Yeah, bound to. Uh, and, um, you know, particularly as some of these phones get a bit older because we know it's usually damaged uh, uh, equipment that uh, starts short-circuiting and then has uh, a thermal runaway uh, that causes this. Um, but I'm hoping that the more experience we get as airlines, the better the protocols will be. We're already giving lots of advice to passengers, like if you uh, drop your phone down your seat, you do not touch your seat. Don't mess about with it. Don't try and fish it out. Just get the cabin crew to uh, look at it because the last thing you want to do is start uh, motoring. If you've got an electric seat, a fancy one, start motoring it, crash the phone, uh, set the batteries on fire, and then you've got a real problem. So, uh, yeah, people will learn how to deal with it better, and hopefully uh, the threat will slightly reduce. But until they replace the technology, I think we're kind of stuck with it. 
Well, you know, there there is. I mean, there 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 is a new technology out there that I, I mentioned a long time ago, but there's a lab that has found a, a lithium ion, uh, a way of making lithium ion without it catching fire. So uh, mm. be interesting to see that technology is actually here. Uh, you can actually sit there and puncture it, bang it, you know, throw it, whatever. It does not catch fire. It's just a matter of making it more stable. So hopefully that's going to be here in the very near future. Made of rubber bands, I think. Yeah, little mouse with rubber bands. <laughs> but they feed the mice lithium ion. That's cruel. <laughs> that is. <laughs> All right, moving on. B A S N, the uh, Aviation Safety Network. Uh, aircraft accident, Airbus A three twenty one at the uh, Istanbul Atatürk International Airport. I say that right? I don't know. Yes. I've never been there. Yeah, I've been there. It's Atatürk, I think. Atatürk, Atatürk International in Istanbul, Turkey. Huh? I've been to that You've airport. You've been there? Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, I'm real. I'm all types of now impressed. Wow. I've only been right. in the airport, but I've been to the airport. It's a nice airport. Mm. It's big. Took me like an hour to walk to my gate from the lounge. <laughs> All right, wow. if I pull out my passport, I've gone too far. I just, just that's it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> questions, Steph. Do they have lines drawn on the taxiways, on the sides of the taxiways? Well, so I know where that aircraft was parked because I actually, my my um, flight departing out of there was parked in a very similar place. We had to take a bus out to a like remote stand. Um, I, You know what? I don't remember. I do have some pictures. I'll have to pull out the pictures and see if I notice any lines on the taxiways there yeah. or not well but. Jeff probably needs to explain what happened and then we can and then we can yeah so we, let, sorry getting, getting ahead of ourselves a little bit We're just, i think so yeah knows what this so is. uh what happened here an asiana airlines airbus a330-323 and hit the tail of a turkish airlines airbus a321 and the uh, 321 suffered substantial damage and <laughs> knocked the whole vertical fin off the tail of the airplane. Uh, the Airbus A321 had arrived and turned towards the gate at Terminal A, and the aircraft stopped about 30, minute, uh, 30 meters before the intended parking position at the gate. They were probably waiting for ground personnel to get into position to bring them in a little bit further. At the same time, the Airbus A330, the uh, Asiana, uh, had commenced taxiing along taxiway golf to the runway, and uh, they were uh, they were intending to return to South Korea. While taxiing past the A321, the right hand wingtip impacted the vertical stab, or the vertical stabilizer of the uh, Turkish Flight 969, and the A321's vertical stabilizer was knocked over entirely, and the A330's wingtip sustained serious damage. And uh, there's a video here in the show notes that we'll include. And it's uh, really interesting to see when that vertical stab got knocked over. And then, did you see that spray of hydraulic fluid back yes. there just spraying <laughs> in the in the air? And then, uh, this is not good. Well, yeah. I'm looking at a picture of probably a similar area to where that incident occurred. I, don't know, I probably can't see it on my phone. It's not, I can't share that very well. But you can tell where you're supposed to taxi. I can't make out if there's actually a line drawn on the ground or not. Well, so here's the bottom line, in my opinion. It doesn't matter where the lines are and whether you're on that center line or not. It's still the responsibility of the captain or 
and or the first officer if they have uh, the steering capability and they happen to be steering at the time to ensure that their wing is going to clear any obstacles. You can't just say, well, I was my nose wheel was on that yellow line. Well, yeah, but that airplane had not completely continued to the gate. You know, if the airplane had been that extra 30 meters, obviously we wouldn't be talking about this. So, uh, but I have a feeling, Captain Nick, you might have a different perspective. Well, no, not really, Jeff. Uh, um, if you uh, are looking out to, to clear the area that your aircraft is going to encompass, uh, and uh, you're not only are you looking at the center line that you're taxiing along, you should be looking at the indicators on the sides of the taxiway that, or actually, more importantly, at the back of the parking areas um, to indicate that an aircraft is fully in its parking area. And when you've got a wingspan, a total wingspan of over 60 meters, it's, it's pretty big for a, a, you know, an aircraft. That's what the 330 has. That's a large area to uh, clear. So you don't take any risks. If you see a tail hanging out over the safe line um, behind the um, parking positions, you come to a halt and you ask air traffic, and if you're in doubt, you get a, a marshaller out uh, to see you past. Having said that, um, if I ever stop short and I think my uh, the back of my aircraft might be hanging outside that safe area, I make sure I let ground know that I haven't completed my uh, pull-on. Uh, and that uh, I'm not in position yet, and then they will let air any aircraft going behind me uh, tell them to be uh, take care, or he'll reroute people to avoid that. Um, and he'll say, the last thing he usually says to me is, let me know when you're fully parked so that uh, we know that taxiway is safe. So it sounds like there was a breakdown in communications as well as uh, the poor first officer. It's his side of responsibility, the right side of the aircraft. The captain can't really see over there. Um, and uh, it's, it was his job, I suspect, to uh, make sure that that uh, aircraft wasn't in the way. Um, but boy, what a mess it made, eh? Yeah. And that's very pro proactive of you to, uh, and, and we talk about it all the time on the show, and I have since we started uh, the Airline Pilot Guy show back in 2009, communication. And Captain Nick just, you know, gave us a great example of, you know, the proper use of communication there. Let people know that oh, looks like we had to stop short just in case somebody doesn't notice that we are not completely out of the way of the taxi line. Yeah, that's exactly uh, right. So uh, somebody sent us some feedback. Um, trying to find it quickly here. I don't think it's in our show feedback folder. Um, and I do apologize uh, because I'm trying to quickly find it, but, uh, somebody asked about the fact, uh, or, or asked a question regarding wingtip clearances, especially for airplanes like L 1011s and 747s and a three forty six hundreds, et cetera, that have huge wingspans. And how do you gauge captain Nick where that wingtip is? Are, are there some kind of cues uh, that you're given, uh, to know about where those wingtips are? Um, we we didn't uh, ever get taught that. It's something you you're expected to pick up as you go along. I mean, uh, you 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 have a reasonable estimation of what thirty or forty meters looks like, depending on you know what kind of wingspan we're looking at from one side to the other. Um, so you just gauge it. You do rely on. Um, people doing their job around the airport, not putting things in the way. Uh, and if um, the worst comes to the worst, uh, you know, we will crack a window and 
crank our heads out and peer down at the wingtip because you can't normally see the wingtip uh, just by looking out of the window. You've got to open the window, which takes a bit of doing. It's very noisy. It's not an ideal environment when you're around lots of aircraft. Uh, and actually stick your head out to see if you're going to go past. So w whenever I'm in doubt, you know, I usually just come to a halt and uh, ask the guy, are you sure I'm going to be clear of that? And if necessary, he has to look out of the window. Uh, and if you're ever in complete doubt, now I did this once when I was trying to taxi onto a new stand and uh, I thought the lineup was at one angle and I went past the correct lineup and got myself almost stuck in a cul-de-sac. I went, damn, I need to re-attack this, uh, this parking position. I wanted to do a 180. Now, uh, I wasn't sure I could get around, um, so I a quick call to air traffic. They brought out a uh, leader vehicle. The guy leapt out with his uh, wands, uh, and as I swung around, he made sure that my wingtip was clear. Actually, it was the Heathrow air traffic control tower I would have knocked over. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> if, don't want to do that. <laughs> if, uh, if I've got it wrong. But uh, no, we, we swung it round, did a, did a 180 on the entrance to the cul-de-sac there and uh, the base of that tower, and then had another go at parking the aircraft. All a bit embarrassing, but we did it safely. That's the most important thing. You've only got one damn career in aviation, and this is just the kind of incident that will finish it. So yes. you know, no, I would say I would say the only embarrassing thing is if you didn't do all of those things and do it safely and did you know, Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. That's embarrassing. Yeah. Hey Captain yeah. Dana, you're a brand new captain here yes. and um I'm wondering if you have received any you may not have yet because you haven't actually been on your operational experience yet. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that your line check airmen will probably talk about when you're taxiing around the mad dog. Have, have you received Two any concrete slabs? There you go. That was what I was told as well. And I guess those concrete slabs are some kind of a uniform, at least here in the United States, some kind of a uniform measurement. I don't know if they're 25 feet or 30 feet or whatever they are. But, uh, you know, they say, just kind of look at those, you know, two, two of those. And that's about where your wingtip is. I yeah, wonder if in, we have metric slabs in the, in I probably do. <laughs> not a <laughs> universal that truth. Tricky. <laughs> that's why I said U S I don't know what, the, you know, in Canada the or the UK. <laughs> you know what I'll do sometimes on a walk around though, uh, just to remind myself, you know, like where, where all the parts are and how far they are away from the cockpit. Wait a minute. You said a walk around? Yeah, I do walk arounds. You? Yes, I do. When yeah, it's not Dana's my leg. Yeah, going to do another one in his life, he says. Yeah. No, so anyway, no, I, I love my walk arounds. I really thoroughly enjoy it. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't yeah. let Jeff do walk arounds. Well, yeah, you insisted to do them all, and I certainly wanted to make you happy, so <laughs> I hadn't allowed that. I did all the walk arounds. I did all the pre-flights. I did all the FMS loading. I did it all, as a matter of fact. I made well, Dana, as you can tell, is awesome. Uh, but, I mean, uh, did you make the tea, Dana? <laughs> tea? No, I yeah, said coffee, tea, or me. <laughs> oh. So anyway, getting back to doing the walk-arounds, I'll go out there, and if I'm at one of the wingtips, I'll kind of look and see, you know, where I am in relation to something that might be a beam where the cockpit is, like something perhaps on the jetway, or there might be some ground equipment or something like that. And then when I get back to the airplane, usually I forget to look at uh, the piece of equipment that I was looking at. But uh, if I remember... I'll say, okay, that's uh, that's where my wingtip is, and just to kind of remind my remind myself of you know where where the wingtips are. 
But, you know, it's not a big deal in the airplane that we fly. Our wingspan is exactly, Dana? What? How many feet? 120. Yes. Was it 120? No. Two concrete slabs. 108 feet, it, 10 inches. Is it? 108, 10 feet. Uh, 10 108, in- 10. I didn't yeah. memorize that number because that's... Oh, I'm something. very disappointed, Dana. You said you knew everything. No, I don't know everything. <laughs> I know I know something. It was uh, Ben Ippolito who uh, asked that question when he said, uh, having flown aircraft with expansive wingtips, how do you work out... And expensive. Uh, evaluating... <laughs> and expensive. Uh, evaluating clearance when those wingtips are that far away. So thank you, Thank you. you ben. Was that in our feedback? Yes, it was. Uh, number I thought 12. so. I just couldn't find it. Oh, it was actually in our current feedback. Awesome. Yeah. Well, there we go. We've already knocked out some of our feedback. Hey. Thank <laughs> Ahead you, Ben. Of the game. Yes. Um, anyway, and, and and you'll know immediately, Dana, that the it's important to know exactly because you'll see all these notums about, you know, taxiway restrictions. And if your wingspan is more than this number, you know, you, you'll know, oh, if, a, if it's more than 108 feet, 10 inches, then I can't use that taxiway or whatever. But uh, it's not usually a problem for us. That's actually excellent advice because, I, you know, I remember I'm like 27 feet tall on the tail. I couldn't remember the width, but. Yeah, yeah. but that's the one that seems to me like that's really important to me and it will be for you as well is the, uh, the, the actual wingspan because that's usually when they talk about restrictions on taxiways and such. But, excellent. Uh, yeah. Well, right. I get, get out there to taxi the aircraft. Oh, yeah, like next week, for, right? Speaking of taxiing, mm-hmm. do you know there's an airport in this world that will actually give you a speeding ticket? Does Southwest fly there? <laughs> no, well, Southwest is not fly there. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, they're banned. Liz, Liz should be, it, unfortunately, she's not listening today at this moment, but she'd be very proud that Toronto, and I get to fly to Toronto, which I haven't flown to in years as a new captain. That's going to be one. Somebody had asked me about... Um, taxiing speeds and um in atlanta um there there's only a speed limitation for aircraft with wingspans greater than whatever Uh, in other words the big uh wide bodies like uh, the ones that nick flies there's like a 20 knot restriction or something or 15 maybe yeah i think it's 15 on one of those uh um just one taxiway that i recall and I've often wondered why. I mean, why? Because it's not like my wings flap about. I actually go quite fast and they don't flap about. So You do more damage if you go more than 15. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they worry about wingtip vortices if you're they, above 15. They're, they're, I think they're thinking that if you do hit something, if you're going 15 knots or less, it's going to be less damage than if you're going faster. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I think you're still going to destroy whatever it is that you well yeah, of I'm course gonna get it here in a second but i'm pretty sure there's a minimum speed of 20 knots for anything that has less than that wingspan minimum speed yeah it's a minimum speed uh, 20 knots i'm gonna go uh, get it right now okay I'll be right that, back. i would say that that's not right <laughs> I, we'll see okay wait so, is it just well, on the is it on the taxi diagram yeah um let me look i'll look too yeah, we'll there is no, various there's, there's no minimum speed anywhere that I've been that I recall, but we'll see. Okay, and while he's getting that, let's uh, jump over to the next item in the news. Oh, there's which, like five million things on this taxi diagram. Just kidding. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff there. That's, uh, that's why uh, they pay us so much money. <laughs> All aircraft with wingspans greater than 214 feet, 65 meters, are required to use taxi speeds not greater than 15 miles per hour 
Oh, miles per hour. <laughs> taxiways KLM and so Alpha, Lima, Mike, and Sierra Juliet. That's interesting they put miles per hour because no airplane I've ever flown has a it's miles give you an per hour in miles. Well, the Cessna 172s made before a certain year do oh. have airspeeds in miles per hour. Okay. But they certainly do not have wingspans greater than 65 meters. <laughs> I hope not. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty slow, right. isn't it? So here's the like nice thing we've got rid of. Uh, Steph beat you to it, Dana. You're too slow, oh. mate. You're going to be faster than that when you're a captain. All right. Go ahead, Dana. Did you find it? No. We, we found something else regarding the wide. If you find spans. something with a, a minimum speed, let us know. We found the speed restriction. Okay. Uh, I'm going to read all these things here. It's going to take me just a minute. Well, let's not read them to everybody. So while, to while you're doing that, while you do that, let me do this. Uh, D, Sichuan Airlines, Sichuan. How did I do? Uh, plane forced into emergency landing after cockpit window is ripped out at 32,000 feet, forcing an emergency landing. Two crew members injured after flight control unit partially sucked out of jet. The pilots of a Chinese passenger jet, an A319, made an emergency landing after the cockpit windscreen was ripped out in midair. Two crew members on the Sichuan Airlines flight were injured when the plane's window blew out. How many times do we have to say this in an article? Are we stupid? Yes. Okay. <laughs> stupid is as stupid yeah, does. I know. I'm the one that, that's reading it stupidly. <laughs> the jet's flight control unit was badly damaged by the resulting sudden decompression. Some parts of the system were reportedly sucked out of the gaping window, forcing the pilots to fly manually, landing the airliner safely at the southwest Chinese city of Chengdu. One pilot, thought to have been the flight's first officer, suffered scratches and a sprained wrist during Monday morning's drama. Well, I, if that's all he suffered, I'm thinking he got away pretty, yeah. pretty good. The pictures are pretty dramatic. They are. Yeah, the entire pain... Uh, the forward windscreen panel in front of the first officer's position was, is gone. Well, and, and did, uh, did you see the interior picture? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> see the, uh, <laughs> the instrument panel is actually deformed quite considerably, uh, trying to get ripped out that hole because of course, yeah. you know, when you have a rapid decompression, uh, there's a lot of sucking going on there yeah, through that a big uh, chunk opening. from the ceiling and uh, the center of the cockpit that's come down. I mean, I don't think people realize, uh, you know, just how much uh, a big volume of air can uh, damage an aircraft when it all tries to move at once, like out of a window. I mean, there have been cases uh, where um, the floor of an aircraft has buckled so much uh, during a decompression that it's uh, actually um, broken flight control lines and that sort of thing because it can deform. And the, the flight deck, the closed flight deck door is another classic um, because we've all got it closed and locked now, if we get a deep decompression, they have to have blowout paddles to allow the air pressure to equalize. Uh, otherwise, that entire door uh, might come in or the actual back of the cockpit might uh, um, come apart as the air tries to uh, escape from the cabin through that uh, hole there. So uh, the fact that that FCU, that uh, flight control unit, the way they normally uh, control uh, the height and speed of the aircraft and the heading has uh, been ripped upwards uh, is not unexpected because all the air behind that instrument panel in the avionics bay will be trying to get up and out of that uh, 
uh, window. And so and that was obviously a, a, the weakest area since it's designed to be taken out. The, the fasteners presumably came loose. But it's pretty dramatic, Jeff, isn't it? A very dramatic. Very dramatic. Um, there is a video. <laughs> so this is interesting to me and perhaps to many of you that uh, what precipitated this was the, the aircraft windows, especially the uh, cockpit windows, are pretty complex devices or, or pieces of equipment. Uh, many, many panes of uh, glass and polycarbonate uh, material and then some other film in between some of these layers with uh, electrical circuitry, etc. for the uh, for the, uh, the, the anti-icing feature, you know, to get, it warms the window up and, and, uh, keeps it from icing up. And it also gives it some extra strength and, and, uh, uh, extra, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, but it, for bird strike protection and everything else. So there's a lot going Pliability. on. Yeah. Yeah. And so when, when you, uh, end up having something that starts arcing, um, you uh, and typically it takes out the outer layer of the window, which is not a critical component. I mean, it can be distracting and it can make a lot of noise, but it's not structurally uh, significant. It's when it's the inner pane, uh, that's a structural thing. And in this case, it turns out that the uh, uh, the piece of the window that actually cracked was the in inner pane. And uh, but the thing that I think is interesting about this is that when they're flying along at thirty two thousand feet. Um, and this thing starts doing this arcing thing. Uh, I, I, am assuming it was the first officer that had his phone out and he was vi taking video of it. And I'm thinking, Hmm, I think if I were you, I would be like, put the phone away and get the airplane, you know, like at a lower altitude and start thinking about where you're going to put it down because this could end up being a bad thing, but I don't know, maybe. That's just because I have the uh, luxury of knowing what happened in this case. But what what do you think about that? No, I agree. Uh, you, your primary job is the, the safety of the aircraft. Get the drills out of the way. Get the aircraft down. And then, if you uh, if you've got something that might be useful to the company, uh, other pilots, the flight safety empire, um, and you think it it could be worth recording an event taking a picture or whatever, then your phone's a handy tool to do that. And I, but I, I wouldn't, first thing I would, <laughs> it's not the first thing I would do is grab my phone and take a video uh, and then post it on the internet for heaven's sake. No, you might use that uh, as a teaching tool, uh, thinking, you know, later on, if people want to see what it actually looks like when one of these starts going. But uh, no, the first thing to do is to, in the uh, Airbus, is to, uh, get the QRH out, and that will tell you to reach up and pull the two reset uh, um, switches in the in the cockpit ceiling that will isolate electrical power to the uh, window heat uh, computers and then kill the power to that, that that arcing area. When you've done that and you've got the airplane down, then you think about uh, what to do then. I, agree. I mean, I, I get it. You know, I'm part of this social media world that we live in. I like taking pictures of things and videoing things as they happen, but not what is your job to be doing something about the situation. <laughs> yeah. Isn't yeah. this cool? Look, yeah. ooh. No, that, that would be the last thing to come to mind. My mind in that case. <laughs> I would be going, holy crap, yeah. this is scaring yeah. the, you know what, yeah. out of me. Yeah. Let's get this yeah. airplane down and on the ground quickly. 
you know. Yeah, not- and that's that's one of the things I learned about you know when I was coming through in captain training was that you know captain's prerogative, even though the you know the procedure may be in the book, you know, start thinking about the logical things here, like Nick was just talking about. Turn off the electrical power to it before anything bad happens, right? Yeah. So if, if my window cracks, if it's really bad, or it's that ain't a crack, it's arcing, then I'd probably go up and reach up and turn the electrical power off the you know the window heat. It's going to stay warm for a little bit anyways. Gives me a chance to run the procedure, right? So that's thinking mm-hmm. outside of the book, and you know you have you have authority to deviate from that. I just right. don't know why they didn't. Captain's emergency authority yep. to do anything that he or she feels is safe for the. Uh, for the crew and passengers. Um, the um, uh, the thing that I'm kind of wondering about is why did his, how did his phone not get sucked or blown out the window? <laughs> I guess well, maybe. when that actually happened, then he was holding onto something for dear life, right? You know? <laughs> Probably his phone. Yeah. <laughs> well, in, in the- just, just correct me. The, the bit, piece of video about the arcing window, it's not the same incident as the window. that. Oh, I thought it was, it. but maybe, maybe it's not. I assumed I it sure. was a separate incident. I don't know. Oh, I, okay. I didn't put the two together though. But okay. Oh, maybe. maybe I I actually did put the two together, but perhaps I'm wrong. Yeah, I but, thought it was uh, the same one, the Sichuan. Oh, yeah. I mean, got yeah, got part. And, and I love the reporting. Uh, at some point, I don't, I don't I didn't remember in this article because I was off looking up this other thing, but uh, said the FO was halfway sucked out of the uh, the cockpit. If that's yeah. the case, that person probably wouldn't be here. So I, I kind of find that. Well, we remember we uh, uh, had a plain tale regarding this, I believe. Didn't you do the plain tale on? Yeah, that's true. The oh, uh, British Airways yeah. uh, the, captain uh, that got sucked out of the window and survived. Yes, did. Yeah. More yeah, than halfway, absolutely. I believe. Yeah. Everyone thought he was dead. He was, uh, his body was on the outside of the aircraft and his head was being repeatedly smashed against the outside of the window. They were all looking at his blood-stained head banging against the glass. They all thought he was dead. They just didn't want to let go of him in case he went down an engine. Yeah. So, but I have to say, um, this was a very nasty uh, incident for the uh, captain on board, who, uh, considering he'd lost uh, a lot of his instruments and his ability to direct the aircraft, he was completely manually flying it. I thought he did a fantastic job. We commented uh, earlier, um, uh, last couple of shows, about the the great job that uh, the captain did bringing that aircraft back that uh, had depressurized and lost an engine. Uh, To me, this is in that category. The guy obviously had no um, books available to him now because everything had gone out the window. His first officer had been injured. The noise would have been appalling. and uh, he managed to get the aircraft uh, safely back in short order. So I think he personally did a fantastic job. In my mind, if I had to pick between the two, I would much rather be in that 737 with the engine coming apart than this A319 with the window blowing out. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right. Just just that the, the flight is such a hostile environment in that howling, freezing gale, and you're trying to do your job and you can't hear anybody, it would have been an appalling situation to be in. Interestingly, um, the gentleman that gave us some inside information regarding a couple of events in Vietnam, Alejo, uh, wrote in and said, Hi, Alejo again. Uh, Alejo, excuse me, Captain Jeff, uh, about your Vietnamese, let me tell you, is almost perfect 
either either uh, either my mother language is Spanish, but after oh wait a minute, either my even I guess maybe it means even even though my mother language is Spanish, but after living three years in Vietnam, I can speak a little Vietnamese. Uh, so I have some information from inside about the incident on the uh, Sichuan Airlines, the one we're talking about here. Uh, this is the uh, translation of the interview that was made to the captain or by the captain of the flight crew uh, few a few hours after the incident. And let's see, the flight was to Lhasa due to the high terrain. Only most experienced crews are able to fly there. And the captain um, had uh, was had a mandatory type rated instructor. No, the captain has to be a type rated instructor or a type rated examiner to fly into this airport. And he said that they talk about flight level 331 because in China, the levels are in meters, not in feet. We've talked about that before on the show. And they refer to Harbin because it's the coldest city in China. So the reporter can understand how cold it would be at flight level 331. And, uh, so the uh, the uh, narrative here from the interview uh, goes, let's see, reporter says, are you now in good health? He's talking to the captain. Uh, the captain says, not feel obvious discomfort by now. My company will have me and the others uh, endure a comprehensive medical examination. The reporter says, I just interviewed some people in the industry. They said that landing would be very difficult. And Captain Liu says, a total challenge, not the daily issue. The difficulty in the cockpit uh, when the windshield bursts is all of us uh, can meet great bodily harm. The loss of pressure, the sudden pressure changes causes a lot of damage to the eardrum. Temperatures drop to around minus 40 degrees Celsius. That's cold. And extreme cold could cause frostbite in the human body. The control panel, the FCU, was lifted and the noise was so loud that you couldn't hear a thing. Most radio and equipment were uh, malfunctioning. You could only do your job by flying the aircraft manually and visually. And uh, the reporter asks, in such high altitude, is oxygen also very thin? And he said, yes, like the cabin, when the cockpit loses pressure, the oxygen masks will automatically fall down. Hypoxia uh, is not a big issue as long as you put the mask over your face and your mouth and nose together. And the cockpit and cabin are sealed and insulated, so the loss of pressure and cooling in the cockpit do not affect passengers. Now, that was part that I'm thinking maybe that was a bad translation because I'm sure that he didn't mean to say Yeah, I think he just meant that, that the howling gale didn't uh, affect perhaps, passengers yeah. so much. Right, right, right. Uh, the reporter says, I noticed that the flight departure time is 625. Uh, well, let's see. That's not an important question. Um Let's see, were there signs at the time of the incident? And he said, there is no sign. The windshield burst suddenly, windshield bursting, making a loud noise. As I looked up, the co-pilot had flown half and half his body was hanging outside the window. Luckily, he fastened his seatbelt. So he had his seatbelt fastened, as we always do when we're sitting in our control seats. The cockpit items all flew up. Many of the equipment failed. The noise was so loud that the radio couldn't be heard. The whole plane vibrates so much you're unable to read any instruments. The operation is so difficult. And he says, uh, the reporter says, why is that difficult? And Captain Lou says, instantaneous loss of pressure and low temperature makes people very uncomfortable. Every action is very difficult. You know, the speed of the plane was 800 or 900 kilometers per hour. And at that height, I'm going to give you a metaphor. If you're driving 200 kilometers per hour in the street of Harbin, what can you do with your hand out the window? 
my words for you, winter in Harbin is the equivalent of Russia's Siberia. And the reporter says, hmm, very difficult indeed. And uh, he says, I heard a 7700 code was issued. Captain Lou says, I did it. Equivalent to means now I need help. The control center and the other flight crew in the air know it. And then they know the approximate situation. What happened? I did this with the keyboard. And he says, uh, the reporter asks, in the situation of automation completely failed, including the FCU damage, you cannot know the flight data, how to determine the direction course, return to the airport, and so on. Captain Lou says, yes, completely manual operation, visually relying on my own to judge. Many of the civil aviation is automatic operation, but this time the automatic equipment couldn't help. I've flown this route over 100 times. I should say everything of flying here is familiar to me. Um, anyway, so, uh, great interview. Thank you for translating that for us, Alejo. Um, and, uh, it's, you know, we, we talk about this a lot as well on the show that experience is, um, worth its weight in gold. Not everybody has experience. I didn't have a lot of experience when I started flying, but as time goes on and we all build, um, experience and log more and more hours that, uh, experience is priceless. And in this case, those passengers were lucky that Captain Lou was at the controls and he had done this more than a hundred times and he knew where he was, where to go and how to get the thing on the ground. So, uh, our hats are off to, to, uh, to him and the rest of the crew. Absolutely. I mean, there were probably, um, formal escape routes because when you're on very high terrain, you depressurize, you really want to get the aircraft down to 10,000 feet. It sounds like that wasn't an immediate option for him because of the very high terrain under him. And when that happens, you have very specific escape routes that will allow you to descend the aircraft reasonably quickly, usually involves finding uh, valleys and that sort of thing that the aircraft could be descended into. But without the navigation equipment and without those routes, which are usually on printed maps, they're unavailable to him. He would be doing it all by eye and visually and remembering. Uh, so that's, I think it's an incredible job he did considering the pressure he was under uh, at the time to recall all that and safely guide the airplane uh, clear of that high ground. Yeah, I think we all agree with that. Wow. What a, what a situation. And uh, our, uh, everybody here at the APG applauds the great work done by uh, handling that situation so well. Hey, Dana, were you able to uh, find out the answer to the minimum taxi speed? Yes, and, and it's up, up for interpretation, but the way it reads is all aircraft using Atlanta with wingspans greater than 199 feet or 61 meters in width are required to use taxi speeds not greater than 15 miles per hour. Parentheses, normal taxi speeds are 20 plus miles per hour in the parentheses at all times on all taxiing airfield pavements and surfaces. So what their suggestion is, is anything that's a large aircraft, 15 miles an hour, but the normal operational speeds in Atlanta are 20 plus miles an hour. But that's not a minimum speed. That's it's just not uh, a minimum. They're speed. saying that's that correct. most people kind of scoot around. Of course, they should have a little asterisk there that says Southwest Airlines uh, double all these figures. <laughs> yes. yes. They're, they're 40 plus. You want to rotate. Yeah. If they're, they're pulling a willy down the taxiway. <laughs> They're the only, only airline I know who give their captains a big horn. So he's behind you on the taxiway. If you're not going fast enough, you can hear it. Go, ah, ah. 
<laughs> hey, we love you guys at Southwest. We really yes, do. We do. <laughs> <laughs> We're just having fun. Um, it's funny because it's true. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but that's actually, not yeah. really. I'm not kidding. No, yeah, really. Okay. Um, and then finally, in our news folder here, the man who ignited a midair brawl on a Seattle to Beijing flight uh, was sentenced recently. Uh, Joseph Hudek, the fourth claimed that this bizarre or his bizarre violent behavior on a Seattle to Beijing flight in July came after he ingested edible marijuana just before he boarded the plane. Oh, that's a great idea. Mm. I'm deeply sorry for everything that's happened, he told the court. Uh, a Florida man went berserk last July on a Seattle to Beijing flight, beating passengers and crew members with a wine bottle before being subdued. He was sentenced to two years in prison. He says, I'm deeply sorry for everything that's happened. Yeah, he's sorry that he has to go to jail for two years. Um, let's see. He was on a employee travel pass, uh, his mom being an employee of that airline. And it says here in the article that she subsequently lost her job. <laughs> yeah, great. Eh? Not only did he do this, he lost his mom her job. Yeah. He wow. says that he, uh, how many did he actually ingest he says at least three maybe more 10 gram marijuana candies before boarding the airliner and then he suffered delusions hallucinations and marijuana induced psychosis and uh, so he was up there he was trying to open the door in flight he got the handle about halfway of course we've talked about the fact that there's no way he could actually open the door in flight uh, being pressurized as it was but um, the flight attendants up uh, in the galley area where he was trying to open the door hit him uh, on the head uh, with not one, but two <laughs> bottles of wine, one of them breaking. Uh, that's And it didn't seem to phase well, him. That's just sad for the wine at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. Wow. No, that is crazy. It's a crazy story. But, you know, it's like he, uh, I feel bad for his mom. Um, but anytime I've traveled on a employee pass or a buddy pass, which I've done in the past, I've been told pretty explicitly by the person giving me that uh, privilege that basically you have to be on you're, you're on your best behavior you're representing the airline to some extent you should show up not looking like a slob um yes. and, and behave yourself behave yourself and that goes for all passengers really i think but especially mm -hmm. when you're doing it on um uh, basically as a guest of the company at that point yeah um the uh, prosecution was recommending the maximum five years sentence, but they said uh, because of the fact that he was young, a lack of criminal history, and the 300 letters of support the court received on his behalf, uh, the judge uh, said uh, two years will do it. So I, wow. I feel a bit sorry for the passenger who he uh, attacked, suffered facial injuries, mm -hmm. uh, and said he's uh, got permanent damage to an eye and also... You received brain injury, so uh, that's yeah. That's yeah and, and all he got off with was two years. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Yeah, that per that person's now has a life sentence. So I have no sympathy for the guy. No, I don't think any of us have. Well, there you have it. We end with great news. <laughs> sort of <laughs> uplifting story here. <laughs> uplifting yeah. story. Yes, that's what we do here at the ABG. And now, the best part of the show. Captain, incoming message. Let's start off with 
this uh, audio feedback that Brian sent us in, Passenger Brian, excuse me, not Passenger Brian, Pasadena Brian, uh, also known as Brian Coleman, the uh, associate producer of the Airplane Geeks, and uh, Dana, he asked several or made some comments and uh, asked some questions that we covered on the last show, but you weren't with us, and he had one specifically for you. And so okay. I'm going to, it's not queued up, so I'm going to try to see if I can find it. I think it's around, uh, let me see if I can find it. Heathrow, I was trying to get in the flight, in the flight, I could tell I was in. Tony, Dana, or whatever your name is. I guess now it's Captain Dana. Congratulations on moving to the left seat. Here's a question for you. With the upcoming retirement of the Mad Dog, why did you choose to move to the left seat versus some other aircraft? Was it even an option for you to move to another aircraft? If it was an option for you to move to another aircraft, which would it be? Or if it wasn't an option for you, when the Mad Dog is finally retired, what aircraft would you like to move over to? And will you move over as a captain now that you're a captain, or will you have to go back to being a first officer? Just wondering... Hope all's well with everyone. Keep up the great shows and look forward to listening to future episodes of Airline Pilot Guy. This is Pasadena Brian. Fly safely. Again, thank you, Pasadena Brian, for sending in those questions. And what do you think, Dana? Well, very good questions, Pasadena Brian. Uh, Things that I had uh, really thought about. the first question you ask is, uh, with the retirement uh, of the aircraft, why would I want to go to the left seat? Well, Brian, it's a very simple question. I didn't want to uh, leave the aircraft prior to me flying it as a captain. Um, I've been on it for a very long time, and I think that would have been one of my biggest regrets in life if I had gone ahead in uh, not flown the aircraft as captain. So I decided, even though I know the aircraft's uh, life expectancy is is coming to an end, uh, I wanted the opportunity to go ahead and fly uh, in the left seat on the aircraft that I spent uh, three years teaching in the last uh, better part of 10 years flying. So uh, I love the aircraft, and I didn't, uh, I don't think I was ready to move on, so I made the right choice to go to captain. Um, the... Uh, it, if I was to go to another aircraft, uh, you know, the, the bottom line is, Brian, is I'm more of a quality of life guy, so I would have moved over to another aircraft, but it would not have been as captain. There are only two aircraft in the base I'm in that I can hold the left seat, uh, the 88 and then the 717. The 717, I'd be super junior uh, with only six or seven guys junior to me. So I, I'm I'm not necessarily in, in a very big hurry to be in the left seat, um, but I knew that this last bid award that came out a year ago was probably going to be my last likely opportunity, and as it's proven out so far, uh, the last opportunity to go to the left seat. Um, when I when the aircraft retires, uh, where am I going to go? Uh, I, I'm going to try to hold on as long as I possibly can. Uh, with quality of life being an issue for me, uh, I, I prefer, and even for my award next month, uh, I bid reserve, even though I can hold a regular line with a regular schedule, I bid reserve so I can be off on the weekends because that's what I prefer because I do enjoy spending time with my beautiful bride, and that's when she's off is on the weekends. So uh, that's a big factor in anything that I do. 
Uh, we don't have any children, so it's just the two of us. So it's important for me to spend time. I can go to the grave, uh, you know, with more money in the bank, but, you know, I can't buy time back. So that's a big factor. So where will I go? Um, I don't know. That is a moving target. I'm thinking about actually bidding back to first officer in the very near future, depending how the progression goes. Uh, if they do offer more captain positions, which, which they have not as of recent on other equipment, and seeing you guys ahead of me decide to leave the aircraft, i.e. Jeff, um, or Tony or Gary. I know Gary's biting at the bit to go to the 737. So in another another buddy of mine uh, that I know is trying to go to the Airbus. So if there's enough guys that bid off the aircraft ahead of me, I'll stay on it longer and probably uh, enjoy it till the end or closer to the end. Uh, if uh, if things don't work out, they don't start offering left seat positions and they continue to displace off the aircraft. Uh, guys junior to me, so I get down towards the bottom. I may just volunteer to go back to first officer. And what aircraft will I go to? Well, that's that's a moving target as well. I'm leaning towards, and Nick's going to love this. Nick will really love this because I'm really leaning towards going to the Airbus 320, 321. Oh, Oh, dear Tom, I need to have a word with Airbus, I think. Uh, no kidding, huh? The God-honest truth and the real reason is, it's not that I dislike Boeing. Um, I, I particularly like Boeing, but the, the Boeing 7576 fleet is also a shrink, shrinking, what did I say there? Shrinking fleet. I hope I didn't say anything bad. Um, so I, uh, I know that that aircraft is going to be going away and I don't want to go and train on another aircraft and only to have to train in another couple of years. Cause I get booted off that as well. And the seven, three, seven, I gotta be honest with you. I'm a big guy. I mean, my shoulders, I've got 54, 52, 54, 56, depending on which, which way you measure inch shoulders. And, uh, I just don't fit in the flight deck very comfortably, especially with us having our EFBs, uh, attached to the window. It, cuts into my arm so more is it leaves me with only one particular aircraft that we're getting a lot of and that's going to be the airbus uh the other no, I, I prefer siemens <laughs> <laughs> oh my so anyways i was just about to finish up uh <laughs> <laughs> well, enjoy, enjoy the dark side when you get there. <laughs> well, there, there is there's a curveball I was just about to talk to talk about. And when I was in training, I went and I sat in the 350, I sat in the 320, and I sat in the C-Series simulators. Uh, the 350, amazingly enough, the leg room on that with your legs can go side to side is much more narrow than the 320 and 321 is. I could not believe that. Have a little bit more leg room uh, side to side. And then uh, on the C-Series, which is actually my preferred aircraft to go to, uh, I really want to fly that aircraft. Um, it, it very comfortable flight deck, very, very well laid out. Uh, a little bit narrower than the Airbus, but I think for ergonomics, trying to reach for everything, uh, I think it actually is laid out a little bit better and not as wide than the Airbus. The only problem that I see with that is that that aircraft is not slated to come to Atlanta, and I'm not at least not in the near future, and I'm not going to commute uh, to uh, that aircraft. Um, uh, 
So that really kind of answers everything. Um, if I need to, I'm going to go back to first officer. I have no problem with it. I don't have some big ego that I need to be a captain. I'm going to enjoy being a captain. Uh, I've already noticed that uh, <laughs> even in the simulator, when I looked over to my right to notice the first officer, how hard they work uh, compared to the captain. And it really never dawned on me because I just don't mind working. So I hope, Brian, that answers the question. I think those were excellent questions. Um, and... Really stay tuned because uh, it is a moving target for me next couple of years. And, you know, the one other thing is how many guys retire and where they retire and what they replace those uh, or whether they replace those. Because lately, I got to be honest, we've been shrinking, even though it doesn't seem like it. We have. We've, we've had no growth whatsoever. So uh, we'll have to wait and see. I, I don't know if the boss want you. <laughs> Ouch. Wow. <laughs> wow. We actually have a little, a little list of pilots that we're not going to let fly the Airbus. You do know that. Yeah. But I could put in a word for you if you want me to. I was going to say, Dana, I, I, I heard their standards are so low, I don't know that you'd want to consider going and, and flying. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. I mean, I have to learn how to speak French. And, you know, the, <laughs> the, the Airbus, the Airbus is idiot-proof. And I don't like being called a retard every time I land the airplane, which I know oh, I'm okay. not. Well, okay. Unlike I'm somebody else there. on this podcast that loves if, if being called a if retard. If it's idiot-proof, you'll get on very well. With, uh, <laughs> well... <laughs> Uh, okay. There's a lot okay. of mutual love here on the APG. <laughs> say that. Moving on. Now, James James Balch asks a very good question. No long haul, Dana. The answer to that question is I have to pull up my passport. I've gone way too far. The answer is absolutely not, James. I have no desire to ever fly long haul. Yeah. There you go. All right. Thank you, Pasadena Brian and Dana, for answering the questions. Uh, let's continue on with John and he says a quick note to Captain Nick despite having suffered from APG syndrome for the better part of 60 years I only recently learned of this outstanding support group I and mean, you know APG syndrome was around before we actually started this show it uh, just didn't have a, it's like many other diseases and illnesses it just didn't have a name so really we were kind uh, of pioneers in the field and because we you know we're there to acknowledge it and bring everyone together. We get to name it. So. There you go. Okay. I'm happy with that answer. Uh, he says, I've only recently learned of this outstanding support group for my fellow sufferers. I cannot tell you how much I've enjoyed each installment. While waiting aboard an Acme flight from West Palm Beach to Atlanta, I just finished perusing the list of ti uh, episode titles on the newly commissioned Plain Tales page. It's with a real sense of anticipation that I look forward to listening to each one. My thanks to all that put the page together, and especially to you, Captain Nick. To use your term, your, will, your work is brilliant. Well, that's ever so kind of you, John. What a, what a very nice thing to say. Thanks very much indeed. It's a, it's a labor of love, so don't feel too sorry for me. I, I do really enjoy doing them. Yes, and we enjoy listening all right so i'm gonna i'm gonna interject here because I, I need to defend something here most of you can't see this if you're listening to the audio podcast but in my hand is a airbus product it's a gift it was a, a gift it was, it was a very gift. Very, it was I a have nick, special gift so nick says i you know it, that i should be forthworn and inside here is a beautiful 
beautiful Airbus pen. Yes, the same one that Steph is holding up right now. But I also have a Boeing pen. <laughs> oh, you mean that plastic green thing? It's plastic, but look, it's got a... <laughs> it's got a, what, a button on the end? What, to make no, the ink pop out? Or is that is it leaked already? Is that what you're trying to tell me, Steph? It's got a, a circuit breaker. <laughs> That's actually very good. Yeah. You don't that use that Thanks all to uh, Adam Spink for that one. And and it's a very nicely braided metal pen. And what Jeff didn't mean, uh, Nick didn't know when he brought me this, is that it's one of my biggest things. I love pens, and I actually still in my flight bag carry my around my first pen that I ever had when I was flying as the first brand new new hire FO. I call it my lucky pen and I still even carry that around in my flight bag even though it doesn't work anymore. So I'm a big time pen man. So I think this is a bit bit of a premonition there, Nick, is that I was probably gonna end up going to the Airbus. Oh, you never know. It so might work that way. I will say this. I am very grateful for the gifts of the Airbus and Boeing pens respectively. But my favorite aviation pen, which is Cirrus. I have a Cirrus a pen from uh, Cirrus, the you know general aviation. Seriously. And <laughs> when you when you uncap it and put the cap on the other end to store it, if you push a down all the way to where, to where it stops, <laughs> no, it's got a little it's got a little light on the tip. So if you're in a if you're in a, <laughs> that's funny. But if you're in it, say that you know. A, it turns a light on when you put. Yeah, it has a little light on the end of it, and it writes really nice. I'll have to go find it and uh, show it off before the end of the show. Have you seen the McDonnell Douglas um, uh, pens? No, they're actually number two wooden pencils. <laughs> <laughs> With an eraser, very importantly. Yeah, yeah very much. So. <sighs> Oi. Well, John, sorry about the uh, APG syndrome. But uh, we're, we're glad that you're here in this support group. To suffer and, with uh, us. Yes, yes. Welcome. <laughs> All right. Uh, three, Chris, how do your airlines handle compensation if you're grounded due to a medical issue? And he says, uh, I've been wondering, what do your respective airlines do for compensation if you're grounded due to suspension of your medical? I know Captain Nick has been off flying status for a while due to his medications. Does this mean he has to rely on some sort of uh, some type of short term disability? Or is he just on his own at that point? Or do you still somehow get paid? I'm interested in finding out how the airlines handle these issues, as I'm guessing it's probably not that uncommon to have a pilot have to take some time off for medical reasons. Thank you all for the wonderful podcast, and congrats to Captain Dana. Mm -hmm. Blue skies and fair winds to all. Chris. Captain Nick. Well, I think it depends an awful lot on uh, the airline, because I think every airline has a slightly different contract. And it's what your contract says that the airline will provide for you. Some of them have a fairly restricted period when uh, you would be on full pay and then you would probably drop down. Other airlines uh, rely a lot on uh, flight pay, so you would get go to a basic level. But because you're not flying, you wouldn't get that additional money, which is your flight pay. Uh, my airline is um, is very generous. They look after their uh, employees particularly well. So I'm on um, my normal pay uh, minus a, a, an element of flight pay, but it's not a huge amount uh, for, you know, they'll keep me on that for uh, usually up to about six months. And uh, if I'm uh, off for longer than that, 
then they'll activate a uh, permanent health insurance scheme which will look after me long term if uh, my, I continue. But it depends very much um, on the airline. Now, of course, some airlines, uh, like some of the low-cost carriers, um, they don't uh, actually employ their pilots or a lot of their pilots. They, um, the pilots have to join a third party who uh, contract them then to the airline uh, so that and they don't get any benefits whatsoever. Uh, which is a scheme I think is uh, is very poor, and I'm very glad I'm, I'm not being forced to do that um, because uh, you know I feel a valued member of my airline because they look after me and have these this kind of safety net for you uh, if you've got a problem there. Um, whereas if you are effectively self-employed, as uh, some pilots are, uh, if they go sick, they they don't get paid. So. Uh, uh, I consider myself uh, a lucky man. Yeah, I mean, I, I well, Jeff's Jeff's gone, but I can answer for Acme on 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 this side, and that is, uh, if you do go out and you get uh, your sick time allotted, that uh, you have uh, allotted per year based on how long you've been with the company, and then once you utilize all that time, which will be approximately. Uh, about two to three months worth of sick time available, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little less, depending on how long you've been here. Then you end up going out on short-term disability, um, which is about 50% pay. But we do have a, uh, a mutual aid fund that will, will up to two years um, make you whole. Uh, but you can only utilize that. I think that's two or three times in your, your flying lifetime. So... Uh, that's an individual contribution, so that's just set up here locally with with our company. Uh, so that's uh, that's how it's handled here. I don't know about other airlines. I do know that uh, in the states, for the most part, uh, oh well, you heard his name, my buddy Dave over at uh, the Yellow Tail Yellow Tail Acme. He's been out on uh, on disability now uh, with his back. And he's got the, pretty much the exact same thing. He's at fifty percent uh, disability even on long term. So. Um, a little different than what's over in, what, what uh, Nick's experiencing uh, for us over here on the state side. I'm curious, what are the um, uh, regionals uh, like, uh, Dana? And uh, 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 your friend there, uh, John, uh, I wonder what kind of a contract he was on when he was uh, flying. All right, well, actually, I was out on medical because uh, John – mentioned you know when he met me i was in a boot and i was with acme junior at that point again the same thing 50 percent of your your in it they'd use an average i think it's over the past three years your three best months or something to that effect um so it was was not a whole lot of money so 50 percent of nothing is still 50 percent of nothing um and it's uh it's hard to live off of but the only advantage to that is it's not getting taxed at the federal tax rate, so it's it's really tax free money. So that helps out substantially. Uh, and and uh, Dave is who you talk about. His experience has been uh, they actually just signed a new contract, and he's still under the old contract pay. So it's it's significant. I think it's about sixty dollars an hour difference. So if you do fifty percent of sixty, of course that's thirty dollars an hour difference that he's losing out on on being a disability. So he's very motivated to try to get back to work. But that seems to be the the standard here in the states for any company. 
And and John, small, the small airline he used to work for, or what was that like? Uh, it was just a, it was a charter company. If you didn't fly, you didn't get paid. Period. Um, so I I worked two and a half straight years without uh, being sick, and I, I flew on the average of three days a week. Uh, the rest of the time, I was doing my other jobs, uh, various things that I was doing. So uh, uh, we had no contract. It was just a handshake. Uh, you'll do this and you'll get paid this for each day that you fly. And that's it. Okay. I grind a hand to mouth stuff. Yeah. Okay. Uh, not ideal. No. Not ideal. No. And actually that's, that's how most of the general aviation flying building your time up to get onto the airlines it's pretty much exactly that way if you don't work you don't get paid there was it was just more of an individual uh, compensation there's no contract there was right. no no motivation especially back in the day when when john and i were both trying to build time it was you know pilots are a dime a dozen now pilots are you know not not really available and and you know finding out uh, people that we know, they're getting two, two, three, four, five job offers from regionals at this point. Um, that uh, they're, they're, they are very hard up. So, uh, a completely different negotiating world and, and, and uh, compensation world. And certainly, uh, you know, if you work with somebody that's reputable as a flight instructor, like a, uh, an Embry Riddle, for example, then you would have uh, full benefits. But most uh, most flight schools have nothing. All right, very good. Thank you, Chris, for that great question. And as you can see, it really varies depending on the airline and what type of flying that you're doing. Uh, Andy wrote in and says, I'd like to thank you all for a great podcast. I started listening around episode 180, and you soon became my regular traveling companion on my business trips and commutes. You also helped to reignite my childhood ambition to fly. I've always been a huge aviation enthusiast, living close to Manchester Airport in British Aerospace Woodford, so always dreamed of a career in aviation. For various reasons, my career took a different path, but your podcast really inspired me to follow my childhood ambition. So, at the age of 37, I left my career as a design engineer, and in two weeks' time, I will start training as an ATPL cadet. Once qualified, I will be flying the A320 around Europe. As you can imagine, I'm really excited about this. I've decided to write a training blog to follow my experiences as someone with a family going through a midlife career change or maybe a midlife crisis. <laughs> my blog is, and he gives us the, uh, the URL, the link to his blog, and uh, we'll put that in the show notes so you all can go there and read his, uh, the very beginning of his adventure. And uh, he continues, in January, we'll be in Phoenix to do our initial flight training. So if your roster brings you close by, it'll be a pleasure to meet up and buy you a beer to thank you for your inspiration. Wishing you blue skies and tailwinds, Andy. And uh, again, Reach for the Sky is Andy's blog. And um, I'm not sure if I'm... Thrilled or terrified that you actually used our show to give you the uh, inspiration to do this? We're I thrilled. hope it all We're works thrilled. out. HR would yeah, like to uh, edit. Uh, <laughs> okay. there. I mean, and, it's. Um, I, I'd also like to say, you know, this is great for a lot of the. We get a lot of questions from folks who say, yeah, I, you know, I always really wanted to fly. I didn't think it was a possibility for me. I ended up in this other job or career. And is it too late? You know, I'm such and such years old. And most of the time it's, 
late 20s, early 30s. And right here is your prime example that, you know, it's you're not. Yeah, it's not too late. I was 45 years old when I took my first intro ride in a Cessna 152. Uh, so I, I wow. am, I'm the prime example of you can teach an old dog new tricks. And exactly. I've been building, I've been flying ever since. That's 20. That's good to know. 28 years ago. Yeah. Wow. That's <laughs> yeah, great. That's, that's great. Yeah, well, and congratulations. Woof, woof. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and, 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 and my story is not very much different. I mean, other than the fact that I worked in the airline business, um, Andy, I, it's just, uh, it, I've been in the airline business, but I always wanted to be a pilot. So it wasn't until I was 32 that I did the midlife midlife change, and it's not a crisis. I can assure you, sir. Uh, you will, if if it's your desire and your passion, then you are making the right choice, and that's the reason why we do this show. I, I, it's why I do this show is to be a positive influence on, on people, and hopefully to uh, you know help them to make the decisions that they have been hesitant to do do in their life, so or make in their life not to do. Yep. So it's, it's our way of helping you all out and, uh, to kind of give back to, uh, I know that captain Nick and I, I'm sure will both agree that, uh, it's been a wonderful career for both of us. And, uh, this is a great way for us to give back to all the, you know, wonderful things that we've received from an aviation career. And who knows, maybe someday when I grow up, I'll be an airline pilot too. <laughs> yeah. I have a feeling that, uh, that actually may happen someday. <laughs> You have all the qualifications, pretty much. <laughs> Missing a few hours, but that's well, you know, small, small fry. Right. I have a funny feeling if you applied, Doctor Steph, you'd have no problems. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think so. So, well, uh, I'm not. I'm not ready to jump ship from my my current career, but we'll yeah, see but you can do a part time on the weekends, and then come to, and do you know work Tuesday through Thursday at your your other professional career that you are, are in right now. Yes, soon, you know. soon, working on that from a financial aspect. We'll see. I'm just saying it could be a possibility soon. Not that I am doing it soon. We'll uh, right. I think no you no big it. news um, announcement or thing or anything. Here no, no, no. Yeah. Don't don't read too much into that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Definitely a full time doctor. So. All right. Hey, I think it might be time for the really best part of the show, which, of course, as you all know, is Captain Nick's. Excuse me, the old pilots. Plain Tales in this week's episode. Go ahead, take the controls. The old pilot's plain tales. Go ahead, take the controls. There's a small line in the operations manual of my airline, and I'm sure a similar regulation in other airlines, which states that Only a qualified pilot may occupy the pilot's seat during flight. To some, this may appear an unnecessary rule. After all, who would ever let someone else occupy that seat during a flight? And even if they did, what could possibly go wrong? I'm sure that some of us who have spent enough time in the industry can remember a time when we might have seen that rule being broken with perhaps a pretty young cabin crew member being given a few minutes in one of the pilot's seats just for fun. The trouble is that 
We are so used to the aircraft always being handled by competent pilots, it doesn't occur to us what might happen should someone, without any understanding of the consequences, accidentally move or select something that puts us in a position that, in our most dreadful nightmares, we didn't see coming. However, as safe and benign as it might seem to put a loved one into the pilot's seat, even just for a few minutes, disasters have followed such a situation. It was back in the 60s that NASA found a need for tracking and telemetry stations to be placed all around the world to provide an essential electronic link to its spacecraft. In places where the terrain was too remote or hostile to build ground-based installations, an airborne station filled the gaps, which became known as the Apollo Range Instrumentation Aircraft, Araya. Eight Araya aircraft were built by Boeing and designated the EC-135, which was itself a modified KC-135 derived from the precursor of the Boeing 707, the Boeing 367-80. The –80 was used on demonstration flights and was fitted with Boeing's flying boom for air-to-air refuelling which served as a prototype for the KC-135. The Araya aircraft were highly mobile and could operate worldwide to receive and retransmit the astronauts' voices as well as record telemetry. Eight of the original aircraft were redesigned as advanced-range instrumentation aircraft and on the 6th of May 1981, one was conducting its last ever flight out of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base on a training mission before being retired. On board were 17 crew members and four passengers. The Air Force had just introduced a program to allow spouses to see firsthand the contributions that their loved ones made to the military, so aboard the aircraft, callsign Agar-23, was the wife of the pilot-in-command, Captain Joseph Emilio, and also the wife of Captain Fonk. The aircraft was cruising at Mach decimal 78 on a simple navigation leg with the autopilot engaged at flight level 290. The aircraft commander, Captain Emilio, who was also an instructor pilot, was sitting in the right-hand seat, and beside him in the left-hand seat was his wife Peggy. At the height they were flying, the weather was clear, with no turbulence or icing. Agar 2-3 had been working Martinsboro Low Sector Controller, but it had just been switched to Baltimore High Sector Controller. The last formal transmission from the aircraft was normal, with no indication of a problem. However, a minute or two later, a female voice was detected on the radio recording. Then, without explanation, the IFF, or ATC Transponder in civil parlance, stopped giving a signal, and no radio contact could be made. Nothing was ever heard of from Agar-23 again. The aircraft was seen emerging from a low overcast at around 2,000 feet, in a 20 to 30 degree nose-down attitude, 
at very high speed, probably around 400 knots. While still above a 1,000 feet, an explosion occurred in the fuselage which resulted in a breakup of the airframe, distributing the wreckage over a two-and-a-half-mile area. Tragically, all on board were killed. Emergency crews poured onto the scene, though they quickly realised no one could be saved. Vaughan Zimmerman, captain of the Wakesville Volunteer Rescue Company and one of the first to arrive, took charge until the military showed up hours later to investigate. Local fire companies put out a few small spot fires, but there was nothing to do but secure the scene and look for bodies. We just knew what we had to do, said Zimmerman, who directed emergency responders to mark the location of the body parts with rakes from the brush truck, tomato poles from the nearby farms, and even personnel if needed. We tried to add some dignity to it, marking and covering them up, and that type of thing, because it was just a horrible thing to have to witness, to see how people were torn up and mangled. That part of it will never get out of our minds. Brigadier General Robert Chapman led the investigation team and authored the report into the accident. He commented that the passengers were authorised to be on board. Of Mrs. Peggy Emilio's presence in a pilot seat, he merely remarked that there is no evidence that the presence of the passengers in the crew compartment contributed to, or caused, the accident. When the wreckage was recovered, it was discovered that the aircraft trim indicator showed full nose down, and that the pitch trim motor and jack screw assembly had run to the full nose down position. The horizontal stabiliser, which is moved when trimming the aircraft out, is a powerful force in pitching the aircraft. And if it were to be positioned full nose down, the elevators wouldn't be capable of counteracting the force. It was this force that pitched the aircraft into a severe nose down attitude, but recovery would have been possible for about eight seconds had Captain Emilio acted quickly enough. However, the aircraft generators tripped off when under negative G for more than two seconds, so the alternating current electrical power to drive the trim motor back quickly would not have been available. Also, at some point, the trim cutoff switch had been activated, presumably to try and stop the trim from moving further. In order to manually move the stabiliser back to the neutral position, the trim wheel would need to be turned through 35 revolutions, a slow and laborious process. With the force of the stabiliser driving the aircraft into a dive, the speed would have increased rapidly, and when recreated in the simulator, once the aircraft was more than 30 degrees nose down, the speed above 350 knots, recovery was impossible. There was no evidence of a trim motor runaway, 
although such an event had resulted in the loss of a KC-135 and there was no explanation for Captain Emilio's failure to react to the out-of-trim condition in time. The brigadier stated that the pitch-trim motor moved for undetermined reasons. Furthermore, soon after the accident, Brigadier General Peter Ogdgers, at a press conference at Andrews Air Force Base, said that how that happened is unknown. I would have to say it was mechanical. However, in a subsequent court case concerning the accident, Boeing proposed an alternative hypothesis. It was contended that the pitchover may have been caused by Mrs. Emilio, seated in the left-hand seat, activating the trim switch on the pilot's control wheel instead of some other control, such as the intercom switch. Her accidental movement of the trim would have gone unnoticed since the autopilot would compensate by applying elevator pitch until, approaching full deflection, it reached its limits and disconnected. Placed suddenly in a negative G pitchover and with a major loss of electrical power, Captain Emilio would have struggled to move the trim back to where it should be since he was in the wrong seat to get easy access to the single trim wheel positioned on the other side of the centre console. As tragic as this accident was, it pulls into relative insignificance when compared to the second part of this tale. There were 63 passengers and 12 crew aboard an Aeroflot Airbus 310, wending its way gently from Moscow to Hong Kong in 1994. Most of the passengers were businessmen returning to Hong Kong and Taiwan after looking for investment opportunities in Russia. Once a year, Aeroflot allowed the pilots to take their family with them on a trip at a discounted fare, and on this day... The relief pilot, Captain Kudrinsky, had his two children with him, his young daughter Jana and his 15-year-old son Eldar. Since the operating captain was on his break, there were five people on the flight deck. Captain Kudrinsky with his children, first officer Piskayov, and another pilot flying as a passenger, Vladimir Makarov. They were talking to Novosibirsk control and approaching Zikar when Captain Kudrinsky got out of his seat and let his 12-year-old daughter sit there in his place. Dad, raise me up, she said, so that she could see properly. The aircraft's autopilot was engaged and no one voiced any concerns at what was happening. While she sat there, her father pointed out stars and city lights and warned her not to push any buttons. Then, no doubt excitedly thinking she was going to fly the airliner, her father adjusted the autopilot heading a few degrees to give her the impression that she was turning the aircraft. Fly the airplane a bit, he said. Hey, Yana, are you going to fly it? Go ahead. Take the controls. A short while later, Kudrinsky let his son occupy his seat, who, like his sister, took hold of the control yoke. Let's get a picture of the pilot, said Eldar's father. You're taking a picture? Yes, I am. 
Kudrinsky showed his son the same manoeuvre that he had done for his daughter, before Eldar asked, Can I turn this, the control? Kudrinsky said, Yes. Okay, watch the ground, where you're going to turn. Go to the left, turn to the left. After a few degrees of turn, Captain Kudrinsky turned the heading selector back to the right in order to regain his proper track but his son continued to apply pressure to the control yoke. As the wings came level, the aircraft, receiving conflicting demands to the ailerons, triggered a torque-limiting device that mechanically declutched the autopilot from the lateral controls. The autopilot was still electrically active and connected to the pitch controls, but Eldar, a 15-year-old, was now controlling the aircraft in roll. The mechanical safety system that uncoupled the autopilot from the ailerons did not raise a warning to the pilots. However, the aircraft operating manual stated that working against the autopilot is defined as an abnormal procedure and should be avoided, and the autopilot override is a safety mechanism that operates outside the boundaries of normal aircraft operations. If it is suspected that the aircraft is not behaving normally when the autopilot is in command mode, disengage the autopilot immediately. Warning, do not attempt to correct the flight path by manipulating the controls if the autopilot is not disengaged. If Piskarev, an experienced pilot, had been the only one holding the controls, he could not have failed to feel the autopilot disconnect itself. But as it was, nobody noticed. With the aircraft uncontrolled in roll, it began to diverge and the right wing slowly dropped. It was happening at a rate too slow for the inner ear to detect, so it went unnoticed through 20 degrees towards 45 degrees of bank. At the same time, the pitch channel of the autopilot was trying hard to keep the aircraft level, and as the bank increased, it applied more and more pitch control force to keep the aircraft at the same altitude. Kodrinsky was busy with his daughter when Eldar said, why is it turning? It's turning by itself, asked his father. Yes. The pilots discussed the problem and thought the aircraft might be entering a holding pattern. But with the auto thrust increasing power maintained speed and the bank continuing to increase, the autopilot completely disengaged. At 50 degrees of bank and 1.6 g, the aircraft began to buffet and stall. At any point, had first officer Piskayov intervened, he could have salvaged the situation, but his seat was pushed far back, and he was obviously also unaware of the increasing angle of bank. It was probable that his difficulty in regaining control was compounded by fighting Kudrinsky's son, who was also moving the yoke. 
with 90 degrees of bank and the nose 40 degrees below the horizon, the aircraft reached 400 knots. And at last, pitching up, Piskayov hit the elevator backstops, reaching more than 4.7 G and exceeding the aircraft structural limit. He closed the throttles and, to quote the accident report, under the emotional stress of the situation, pitched the aircraft steeply upwards with no power coming from the engines. At this point, Kudrinsky got his son out of the left seat, but in doing so, the rudder was deflected, and with the speed low, the nose high, and ailerons and rudder left, the Airbus was being forced into a spin. The aircraft rotated rapidly, the nose dropped, and although eventually Kudrinsky was able to stop the rotation, they didn't have enough height left to prevent the aircraft from impacting into a remote hillside amongst the Kuznetsk-Alantau mountains. There were no survivors. In both of these cases, allowing a loved one to play at being a pilot may not have directly caused the accident, but it certainly put the handling pilot at such a disadvantage that they were unable to understand what had gone wrong and how to quickly correct the problem. The design of the aircraft undoubtedly made things worse. Had either the EC-135 or the A310 been equipped with warnings that indicated the movement of the trim or the declutching of the autopilot that these crews encountered, the chances are things would have gone much better for them. However, neither accident would have happened had the pilots just kept their seat. Wow. Yeah. Every time I hear that story, I just think, oh, man. Absolutely. How tragic. I know. It sends shivers down our back. And, uh, you know, you just think of all the opportunities they had from, uh, you know, start to finish of, of avoiding that. Uh, I mean, the primary one is not putting your son in the, or your wife come to that behind yeah. the controls. Because or if you'd, uh, you know, the, the first officer, if he had not pushed his seat back so far, just yep. in case he needed to take over, you know, yep. then that wouldn't have. And there's so, yeah, so many uh, holes that lined up in the, in the uh, Swiss, Swiss cheese, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Go back to that first one. Um, what type of airplane was that? A Boeing what? It was an EC-135, so it was based huh. on the um, yeah, KC-135, which itself was yeah. based on the precursor to the 707, which I think was called the 367-80. They just called mm -hmm. it the 80. That was the one right. that Tex, what's his name, did the roll. barrel roll in. Yep. So that was the prototype version of the 70. The 70 was uh, designated slightly different, and it was uh, it looks slightly different as well. I'm surprised, different. though, that uh, I guess when they made the 727, they changed the way all that worked so that, and it also also surprises me that the trim wheel was only on one side because most Boeing uh, airplanes, the trim wheel, um, the manual trim wheel is on both sides of the console. Yeah, and I, I actually had to go find a picture 
uh, okay. of the flight deck just to see what it was. And it, it, unlike a lot of trim wheels where you only see part of it protruding above the console, this is right. an entire wheel, and it's uh, it only appears on the captain's side. So, huh. yeah. I mean, I guess the first officer could reach over and yeah. wind it. It's not a very big console. It's, you know, it's really only... Uh, bits of throttles and other bits and bobs and the only thing and the other thing is that uh, with the 727 if you actuated the trim when the autopilot was engaged the autopilot would immediately disconnect so maybe that's something that yeah. they they that's implemented after this. and there's another aircraft isn't there where every time you activate the trim it makes a, a clattering noise uh <laughs> yeah which airplane's that I uh, yeah, it's a mad dog because oh, it's the uh, mad dog. Is it? Oh, right. Yeah, not so every time. <laughs> not every time. I mean, it's like yeah. a football round. Third degree. Well, see with the Boeing though. I mean, it's obvious when that trim is moving because it just makes a racket. It's a yeah, mechanical yeah, thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So yeah, but the, you're right. The uh, mad dog makes a horrible sound when you. So, um, so I'm guessing that's to stop it quietly trimming itself to full. Defense. Yeah. So you'll notice that. Wait a minute. Why is that thing making that noise? It's yeah. trimming on its own, and I'm not trimming the airplane or the air. The autopilot's trimming, but it's like continuing to trim, and it shouldn't be, and so something's wrong. Yeah. No, so I remember. My father, who was who flew the seven zero, telling me that if they got a trim runaway, this the wheel beside them started spinning faster and faster, and at some point they had to try and grab it and stop it, and they mm -hmm. good chance of burning the hands if it they. Oh yeah. Himself, yeah. Yeah. It was quite. And a it also has thing. a, it has a handle on it too that pops out ninety degrees, and you always have to be very very careful that that handle is stowed before you re-engage the uh, trim system because you can break your kneecap. <laughs> oh, no, I'm serious. It's very... <laughs> so it's like you, you can tell a Boeing pilot if you if the trim is running and you see them move their knee very quickly out of the way of the console. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. just something that you just learn right away because you don't want to get whacked by that thing, that's for sure. Yeah. Oh, I, another reason why not to fly the 7.3. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know, but uh, it, uh, eight seconds is a terribly I – when you think about it, if you just stop speaking now for eight seconds, it would seem a long time. But to appreciate what's happened and then turn that trim wheel 35 times, oh, give me a break. I don't think that guy stood a chance, even no. if he had been on the right side. And, a, and it reminded me also of the uh, Air France um, tragedy, uh, the, um, uh, where the trim was all the way back, uh, nose up. And by the time they finally realized that, it was too late. There was no way they could trim it out and it, you know, to get to regain authority of the elevator uh, because it's just you know beyond yeah. the capability. Well, that's what happened to the KC one three five that had a trim runaway. It went nose up. But went oh, I thought it went nose down. No, this okay. this one, the the previous one uh, on the KC one three five went nose up, and the aircraft mm -hmm. uh, went into a stall, and then subsequently they lost control of the aircraft and it crashed. Um, hmm. so, uh, you know, but it was the same sort of thing. They couldn't get that trim wheel sorted. That's such a powerful control surface, that entire moving tailplane. When it mm -hmm. runs away like that, you haven't got a hope. Hmm. Wow. Well, another great plane tail, sir. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm going to try and find something a little more lighthearted. <laughs> yeah, no, no more of this, like, you know, doom and gloom and sad, <laughs> yeah, no. depressing. Well, the Belgium, uh, uh, the Bell Mirma, and uh, this one, uh, I'm starting to feel a bit depressed. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, let's face it, how many shows are there really about aviation boredom? Because 
most of the most of the things that happen in aviation that have interest that people want want to hear about or learn about it's not about us sitting there shooting an ILS down to minimums and we land successfully. It, that, you know, that's it, a very good it, point. It, uh, know, I shall I shall tell the story that prompted me to go into this, apart from being reminded by a listener that uh, uh, of coming back onto the flight deck and seeing what was happening when I'd been and who was sitting at the controls. Uh, but I'll wait until I retire before I do that. <laughs> okay. Excellent. That'll be a good one. Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, you can tell me privately over a few beers. Yeah, yeah. when you come over from Farnborough, we'll have a beer and I'll, I'll, sh- I'll shoot okay. that line. Excellent. Okay. I was going to say, uh, Dana mentioned aviation boredom. Is that just the subtitle of this show? Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Wow. Oh, wow. The Airline Pilot Guy Show. Aviation boredom <laughs> at its best. Wow, that was really rude. I know, Steph. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it was just what came to mind. But then I thought it was okay. funny. Well, it's, only, but it's only 50% aviation boredom. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's right. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on. Uh, speaking of the 737, we had just mentioned that. Um, Tony wrote in and said, I noticed... The attached report on Flight Global concerning overspeed correction by the pilot on a 737. It also noted another similar incident two months later. Several questions spring to mind. Is this a common phenomenon? Is the 737 likely to be more prone to pilot ham-fistedness? The additional training suggested deployment carefully of the speed brakes, but would that have been a part of normal training or sim sessions? Thanks, as usual, for the great show. Go well, Tony. And he gave us a link to a flightglobal.com article regarding an investigation by the UK investigators uh, determining that a Boeing 737-800 captain's heavy-handed manual response to a developing overspeed resulted in a serious injury to one of the flight attendants. The inquiry into the upset on the Ryanair jet, which had been descending towards Manchester on 14 January last year, found that the captain had been startled by a sudden increase in airspeed towards the maximum operating Mach limit. Air Accidents Investigation Branch Analysis revealed that the 737 had started a descent from 40,000 feet, having been cleared to 20,000 feet. Air Traffic Control had requested that upon speed conversion that the flight Uh, the crew fly at 270 knots rather than the carrier's standard 245 knots. The 737 began to descend while traveling at Mach 0.77 to Mach 0.78, but owing to a strong jet stream, the wind speed increased rapidly, and during descent through 36,700 feet, the aircraft's airspeed rose to a maximum of Mach 0.818. While the autopilot was engaged, The captain felt that it was not correcting the overspeed. Thinking that he had little time to react, he simultaneously pressed the autopilot disengage button on his control wheel and pulled back on the control column. His intention was to avoid the overspeed as smoothly as possible using manual control inputs. But flight data recording showed that the captain quickly exerted a 42.7 pound, 190 newtons force on the control column. Although the inquiry could not determine whether the autopilot disengaged as a result of the button press or the column input, it says that the force applied was twice that required for autopilot disconnection. At the time, the captain believed he was managing the maneuver gently, it states, but with hindsight, he suspected that the startle effect caused him to exert more force on the control column than intended. 
The abrupt maneuvering caused two cabin crew members to lose their balance and one suffered a broken ankle. Investigators pointed out that the lower air density at higher altitudes reduce the operating envelope and that manual flying in such conditions demands particularly careful handling and the avoidance of large control movements. So true. Boeing's training manual states that changes in wind speed could lead to overspeed. While the autothrottle is able to provide aggressive speed control near operating limits, the manual says short-term overspeed can nevertheless occur when or under certain conditions. It advises crews in such cases to deploy partial speed speed brakes slowly until a noticeable, noticeable reduction in airspeed is achieved and retract them equally slowly once the airspeed falls below the operating limits. Both pilots subsequently completed a recurrent simulator session, which focused on overspeed recovery. Investigators have highlighted a similar event two months after this incident, which involved a Qantas 737-800 that experienced increasing headwinds during descent towards Canberra, uh, Canberra on the 13th of March last year. The crew used manual input to avoid overspeed, and two cabin crew members were injured. And I know that... Uh, I'm certain that Captain Nick, Captain Dana, and myself, and probably John as well, have been in airplanes where this kind of thing occurs. Uh, the autopilot is seemingly allowing the airplane to do something that you had not intended it to do. And because you want to quickly keep it from exceeding uh, an overspeed or whatever exceedance, you quickly and sometimes ham-fistedly overdo it. And you have to be so careful when uh, in these situations and uh, you, you have to think about the fact that it could injure passengers and crew. I think, yeah, I, I don't think people quite realize sometimes the narrow band of speed we have to operate in when we're at our maximum cruising altitudes. I mean, uh, you re I've regularly seen uh, 10, sorry, 15 or perhaps 20 knots between the minimum and maximum speeds. And that is not a big margin. So you're cruising somewhere in the middle. You can only, you only increase 10 knots and you hit the barber's pole. 10 knots is not a big variation in speed. So it can happen quickly. You ha do have to be alert. You can't spend the entire time uh, facing backwards and, uh, you know, taking movies of each other. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, uh, the other thing to keep in mind is that uh, even if you maybe get a momentary overspeed or an overspeed warning, it's not like the wings are going to rip off the airplane. You know, it's, it's you have to think about the fact that what you may do to try to prevent it from overspeeding may actually be worse than just allowing it to momentarily uh, go through the exceedance. Although in today's world, we have all these snitch systems and uh, it's even... <laughs> more likely that we're going to try to intervene uh, sometimes with uh, not great um, consequences uh, because as soon as it is exceeded, then that's going to issue some kind of a report that is going to cause you to, you know, get in a little bit of trouble. Uh, but Dana, um, when I was reading this, at least the airplane that we fly, um, my initial feeling, because it, sometimes this happens in... Um, and VNAV, vertical navigation, and it, it, it controls airspeed based on pitch. And sometimes it, it gets a little bit aggressive with pitch control, and you could just tell that this is not going to work. And I always intervene before it ever gets to the point that it looks like it's going to uh, suffer an exceedance by going into a different mode, uh, in my case, vertical speed. And I'll even 
turn the auto throttle system off if necessary, and then just slowly, smoothly bring the pitch of the aircraft up, up so that it slows down and doesn't go through the exceedance and you don't end up hurting people in the back. Yeah, I mean, um, I actually had a situation going back several years where in VNAV, the aircraft over, oversped itself. Mm-hmm. And that is when you get into FMS idle, um, it will pitch the aircraft to whatever angle it needs to to maintain the path. And it ignores, <laughs> it, it, it's one of those gutches. It will ignore um, the airspeed in which it's trying to hold. So let's say you're descending at 300 knots. But the path is below you, so it's trying to catch that path. So we'll we'll continue to accelerate the aircraft. And uh, this one particular incident, the captain was the pilot flying, and I said, "You are aware that you're, you know, FMS idle." And he said, "Yes." So I said, "You have no speed protection." He said, "Yeah, no worry, don't worry about it." So I sat there and watched the speed to increase, 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 and he ended up going into barber pole. So company contacted me after we wrote up the. Uh, up the aircraft for over speed and lo and behold you know they said well do you realize that in fms idle the aircraft will over speed i said i absolutely knew that and i made the captain were fully aware of it so uh you know the the aircraft has protections in it but it's not foolproof foolproof in in any in any way so the important part is is you know as my one of my first flight instructors i ever had taught me and, and you just alluded to jeff is that smoothness counts and, you know, especially once you're up at altitude. Now, our aircraft, uh, you know, can overspeed in, in, in descent, but, you know, we never get into that coffin corner, as it's called, very, very often because we, we're never up that high. I mean, very rarely we're above 35 ever. So, uh, you know, when, when Nick's across the pond, I'm sure you get up to the upper 30s. Uh, you know, I don't know what the max altitude on it is. What, 41,000, Nick? Yeah. Yeah, 41. So, you know, you get up into that higher altitude, then you start, you know, experiencing like this aircraft, at, you know, at 40,000. You, you know, it's it's a much, much more narrow range than what we normally feel in the uh, Mad Dog. But the aircraft, you know, if, if you don't watch it and, and monitor it, it will, it will, it will put you in that situation. And it's all about, uh, it's our responsibility as pilots to be in charge of what's happening with the airplane, the path of the airplane, vertical path and, and uh, lateral path. And if it's not going to do what you want it to do, then you take measures to prevent that from occurring. And just, you know, as we see in this case, you just have to be careful when you take over, you know, manual, there's nothing wrong with taking manual control. However, I think the initial action should have been uh, and I think all of us here would have done this is to just take those speed brakes out and just, you know, crack those speed brakes and try to, you know, put some drag on the airplane to keep the speed from exceeding the, uh, the, the maximum mock. But yep, uh, that's our SOP, Jeff. Mm-hmm. So, and the other thing that was interesting to me is it was a 737-800 and 0.81 is not that fast for that airplane. I'm not sure what the uh, VMO is on it, but, uh, uh, I was wondering about well, that. I was going to that seems to have a big effect on that. Yeah, that's, yeah, but I'm I don't know. I, I thirty six thousand seven. I thought that the eight hundred with the new wing um, was a much faster wing, and uh, in the seven two point eight one eight wouldn't be a big deal. We consist, you know, we always were flying at eight two. I think eight four or eight five was our VMO on that one. Uh, perhaps the uh, seven three, even with the new faster wing, is still lower than that. I don't know. I just thought that was kind of weird. seems like it would have been higher speed. It must be a faster, slower wing. 
A fly, yeah, a faster <laughs> or a slower, faster wing. Yeah, that's probably it. <laughs> All right. Um, speaking of mad dogs, Charles uh, says he flew in an American Airlines MD-80 the other day and enjoyed the familiarity and simplicity of this McDonnell Douglas aircraft. I've been on many times over the years. It's nice and quiet at the front of the plane with those engines way in the back. As an MD-80 pilot, how much longer do you think the U.S. Airlines will continue to run these? As I know, newer planes are more efficient. Thanks. Yeah, and we're running out of cycles as well on these airplanes. And uh, as far as how long, I don't know. It seems to me that uh, Americans going to be uh, have theirs all gone pretty quickly. I think they only have about 40 remaining in their fleet at this point. Uh, at Acme, it's going to be a little bit longer, probably, if we had to guess. Dana, what would you say? Three to five years? Well, the 88 is supposedly going to have to be retired by the end of 2020 because of the new, uh, uh, what's that rule that's coming out? ADSB. AD, ADSB. Well, Mark my words. That's at the beginning we'll, of 2020. We'll get an exemption. Okay, I guarantee okay, well, Oh, you can buy one of those two hundred forty dollar things and stick it on the window. It's well, this is it's just it's like just the receiver. <laughs> well, and, and, and we we are you know we're parking forty of them this year, so it's yeah. it's going away quick. Um, the the big question is the the MD ninety, and I think the issue with the MD ninety. Well, we know what the issue with the MD ninety is the engine. We we work the only place is only one place in the world that works on the engine, and I still don't believe that. That, that, I don't believe that story. It's not a story. Yeah, my, okay. my neighbor, three houses down here in the cul-de-sac, is the manager of the T-tail program at Acme. And uh, he manages the whole entire, you know, anything has to do with maintenance of that aircraft. And the only place is in New Zealand. Um, I'm just always reminded of the fact that uh, when we came out with the uh, reduced vertical speed, I mean, vertical separation, uh, RBSM airspace, how they said, oh, yeah, yeah, we're not going to be able to fly the DC-9 anymore above 29,000 feet when that goes into effect. Well, we all know that uh, the DC-9 continued to fly above 29,000 feet after the fact because they got an exemption from the FAA. And so that's what I'm anticipating will happen with the uh, Mad Dog. But maybe that's just wishful. I think a lot has to do with the CS deliveries. Whether they actually happen. No, that is really, that's the factor. It's the uh, number of seats they're coming in. And obviously, when the new airplanes come in, more seat capacity, then the airline says, okay, we got to get rid of the older seat. And the, other, the, other, the other factor, too, right now is the, uh, the NEOs, the Airbus NEOs. They're having issues mm -hmm. with those engines. So that may push that back as well. Right. So there are a lot of variables here. And... Uh, so if somebody tells me, yeah, I can show you this table where it says that all these uh, mad dogs at Acme are going to be retired by this point, I'm going, okay, yeah, I've been around now for almost 30 years, and I've been through the L-1011 fleet retirement, and I've been through the 727 fleet retirement, and you can show me tables all day long, and I can tell you that that's not going to be truth. Maybe even sooner, maybe later, probably later, but that's my guess. Okay, um, Matt sent us some audio via or uh, covering the wings over Illawarra, which was a, a great air show in the beautiful, great country of Australia. So take it away, Matt. G'day, APG crew. This is MBF from Melbourne, Victoria. Just recapping our Wings Over Illawarra meetup, which occurred last Saturday at Wings Over Illawarra Air Show in New South Wales. It was a fantastic air show. 
and Ray Davis, myself, Glenn Towler, Sidestick Matt and Grant McCarran were able to attend. Grant was pretty busy with his commitments with commentary, with Ando. They both did a fantastic job. Uh, and Glenn came in from Wellington, New Zealand just for the day. It was a fantastic effort on his behalf and he didn't get in until about 1.30 in the afternoon and we were able to uh, finally meet and uh, enjoy each other's company for the afternoon and enjoy all things aviation. The Australian Defence Force uh, supported the air show represented by the Australian Roulettes, the uh, display team, as well as a couple of Hawk trainers and FA-18, classic FA-18s, one of which did an amazing solo uh, performance at the end of the day, culminating in the wall of fire, 700 litres of petrol going off at once with uh, people not too far away. It was pretty, uh, pretty impressive, some people requiring a change of garment shortly after. Uh, there are other fantastic aircraft on display too. There was a Beach 18, a 1952 example, owned by the Tibbets, and Paul Bennett Air Shows once again with their uh, World War II and classic aircraft uh, displaying themselves in such fine form as they usually do. Paul's solo performance was breathtaking. Uh, his ability in his aircraft is uh, second to none. An amazing aviator. And uh, Matt Hall in his, in his aircraft, again, on par with Paul. It was great to see him make the effort to come down and, and fly. The Russian roulettes and their Nanchangs, uh, which basically Yak-52, just a, a Chinese version, put on some, a great display. And the, the, uh, the Australian version of the uh, F-86 Sabre with the Avon engine in it made an appearance as well. We had uh, a Hurricane and a, uh, a Spitfire, as well as some other aircraft as well. All in all, it was a fantastic day, and uh, we're going to make it our annual meetup for our APG PTUK community members. So if, you're, uh, if you missed this year and you want to come, get your hall passes in early with your partners and mark your diaries, and uh, we'll give you some uh, reminders close to the time next year. But until then, we hope you all enjoy everything aviation and uh, the show. This is MBF out. Thank you, MBF. Awesome to hear the live report from uh, Wings over Illawarra. Very cool. Thank you for taking the time to do that for us. Sounds like it was exciting. Yeah, uh, it sounds like a great way to light your barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Uh, a lot of people perhaps suffered physiological moments. <laughs> oh, boy. Captain Clevy or Clevy, C-L-E-V-Y, uh, wrote in and said, uh, I spoke with my FedEx pilot buddy, and he stated that the HUD glasses that you guys spoke about for smoke-filled cockpit use are integrated into a quick dom mask so you don't have to choose whether to breathe or see during the emergency landing. And uh, hopefully we didn't give the impression that that's what we thought because we... I think understood that um, this uh, this new technology would be both the breathing device apparatus and the synthetic vision uh, for safely landing the airplane. But thanks for checking up with your FedEx guy, buddy. 
And thank goodness you don't have to choose. That would not be. Yeah, that would be. Ideal. You, know, you got to hold your breath and see, or breathe freely and wait for it to hit the ground. No, that's not no. good. Okay, uh, Doctor Dan writes: uh, the crash of Egypt Air Flight 804 into the Mediterranean Sea that killed 66 people. Uh, was that a couple years ago? I think uh, was caused by a hot apple product, according to a new lawsuit. The families of several of the victims of the May 19, 2016 crash claimed the tragedy was due to the co-pilot's iPhone 6S or iPad mini overheating in the cockpit and catching fire. According to the docs, uh, an inv investigation revealed the device ignited and let led to a bigger fire in the cockpit, which ultimately took the plane down. It should be noted, however, some industry experts have questioned this phone theory and believe the fire on the plane started beneath the cockpit in the avionics bay due to, due to a short circuit or some kind of explosion. Still, the families believe there's enough evidence to hold Apple responsible for the deaths of their loved ones, so they're suing for damages. Well, I don't think there's any evidence that the phone or the iPad mini actually brought the airplane down, and I think they're going to require evidence to win a lawsuit against... I know they're... You know, Apple has a lot of cash, and I'm sure that the lawyers know that that's a big, big target. But uh, what do you guys think of that? No, I agree with you. I think there's, unless they had solid concrete evidence that that's what happened, this doesn't hold up. Doesn't float the boat. Uh, and Apple, you're right. I'm going to fight that. They don't want to have their name dragged through the court, so, uh, and they can keep that going forever so i have yes. a feeling these poor people are being led up the path here by their lawyers they they're probably reaching too far i believe so hello apg community and cockpit crew this is jim in texas i've been remiss in sending in feedback for a while but i wanted to make up for it a little bit by complimenting captain nick on his wonderful set of plane tales and particularly i enjoyed the interviews with sir glenn torpy uh, a tornado pilot who wound up being the, I believe, the chief air marshal of the Royal Air Force, the person who's in charge of the whole operation. As some of you know, I was formerly an EF-111A Raven electronic warfare officer, so I'm not unfamiliar with flying low levels on automated terrain, falling radar, even at night. Although I have to say at night, I was never just super comfortable doing it. Anyway, so I'm listening to the, the interview with Sir Glenn, and we get to this part, and I kind of don't think people who haven't tried this before understood how radical uh, this pilot and crew were when they were flying in Iraq. I gather, um, you know, flying a tornado at night using TFR uh, would be an enormous challenge, but you decided to make it just a little harder you weren't happy with the height the TFR was flying you at, I gather. Well, the aircraft was designed that it could fly completely hands-off using train-following radar linked into the autopilot. But the minimum height you could dial in to the terrain-following system was 200 feet. And when you f were flying over the desert, depending on the, on the TFR radar it would fly you at probably about 220, 230, maybe even slightly higher. And there were occasions, because of some of the threats, like SA-8s, um, that that probably wasn't going to be low enough. So 
we all came up with slightly different ways of, you know, so how are we going to fly if you needed to? It didn't say you had to do this all the time. But if you needed to, how could you fly lower? And there were different techniques that people developed. The way I personally and my backseater decided to do it was to use the flight director system that, that we had in the aircraft fed off the train following radar, but actually to manually fly the aircraft by effectively using that symbology, but tracking a bit bit lower than you would normally do to fly at 200, to 230 odd feet. And that could get you down, you know, provided you were sensible about it, that could get you down to about 150, 160 feet, which was a much um, safer sort of environment to, to be operating. Wait, wait, wait. I could not possibly have heard that right. Well, let me back that up. That could get you down to about 150, 160 feet, which... Wow. I have to admit that if I heard this from anybody with less of a, a reputation for integrity and massive flying experience, I'd have thrown out the BS flag because that is unblanking, believable to me to accept. I can remember flying at 400 feet at night and I'd be uh, bopping along looking at the radar and at least in the F-111 and I bet the tornado is the same way the nav is looking at several radars and giving a running commentary on what's coming up and keeping track of where you are and so on and every now and then I like under my eye I would like see a house go right under the airplane and it would be like whoa whoa we're really too low so anyway the thought of hand flying at 480 plus knots at night using the attitude director or whatever display they have in the front seat of a tornado by hand at 150 feet. I mean, my hat is off to that. Like I say, if it anyone else without this sort of a background that this uh, gentleman has, I wouldn't believe it. And I can't actually mentally picture that happening. But I just wanted to share with the whole audience that he sort of was going along in his interview. Yeah, and we did this and we did that. And we flew along at 150 feet by hand at night over Iraq in combat. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. That is absolutely heroic. It's absolutely heroic. And it shows a level of bravery that is, I think, you look at the whole history of aviation, you won't find many much flying that could top that for sheer guts. So my hat is off to the Royal Air Force and Sir Glenn for sharing that story with Captain Nick. And thank you, Captain Nick, for uh, letting us in on this interview. I hope you can get many more like this. This is Jim in Texas. Thanks and hello to the APG crew and community. Thank you, Jim, for uh, coming up with that audio feedback, which was uh, no small feat, by the way. Very nice audio production. Uh, we always get that from Jim. And, oh, uh, absolutely. And uh, a very nice compliment. And I will uh, make sure I pass on your very kind words to uh, Glenn uh, the next time I see him. Very good. Very good. All right. Well, I'm looking at the uh, list of feedback in our show folder here. And I know for sure we're not going to get to it all. In fact, we're getting close to the end of the show right now. And so next time we're going to uh, address some questions, feedback regarding center of gravity, weight and balance, a couple of those. Uh, oh, that'll be exciting. Yes, fascinating. What, what did you say uh, our new motto is? Boredom. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> as, as well. 
<laughs> and uh, also uh, a recent uh, 60 Minutes in Australia uh, segment on the fact that someone is saying with absolute 100% certainty that the MH370 uh, missing airplane 777 was a murder-suicide. Hang on hmm. a minute, Jeff. How, 60 how Minutes. Uh, we The show's only three hours that is, <laughs> as it is. Yeah, well, we're not going to do 60 minutes on that piece of oh, feedback, oh, trust thank me. Thank the Lord for that. <laughs> it was the, the name of the show. <laughs> Some certifiably crazy person decided to go ahead and, and, and make that their statement. I mean, really? Yeah, well, the guy's selling a book. Well, yeah, we're going to talk about it in the next show. Just wanted to briefly mention it. And uh, let's see. Also, you know what? Quickly, we're going to do this one. Alex sent us some uh, some feedback that's going to just rocket us above the 50% level. Uh, he says, Captains and Doctor, I made my APG feedback debut in episode 321, How to Land a Plane, where I described my problems trying to get the hunk of junk on the ground properly. I have to say, I was pretty frustrated, and after 32 landings, I really didn't have one of which I was proud. You all gave me some wonderful advice, mainly keep my perspective down the runway. And it worked My by focusing on a good approach configuration and looking down the runway. Landings 33 through 43 were silky smooth. Thanks for the help. Clear skies, Alex. Yay. That's Yay. Yay. We did it. Alex. We did it. Did it. <laughs> good job. We end, the show, we end the show on a positive note above 50%. Yeah. He doesn't mention my advice of shutting his eyes. So, oh. <laughs> I think he oh, just Brian, that. is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, yeah, it's now time to shut this thing down. Um, John, yes. uh, thank you again for uh, hanging in there with us and giving us some uh, great commentary and. Uh, and uh, just, you know, moral support. I love for, being here. Thank you for inviting me. appreciate it. Well, come back anytime, man. Really, honestly. Thank you. And uh, so uh, let's see. We, we would be remiss if we didn't mention the wonderful work behind the scenes that uh, Miss Liz Piper does for us as producer of the show. Thank you, Liz, for that. And let's see. If uh, you want to learn more about the show, please head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com where you'll find information about the crew and the uh, community, the coffee fund, merchandise, uh, plane tales, and so much more. And we also have uh, some, uh, what do you call them, smartphone, tablet um, apps, yeah, yeah. Uh, both for the iOS and Android. Guaranteed and not again, to catch a light. <laughs> yes, we hope not. Uh, and uh, you can find information about that in the embedded show notes for the podcast you're listening to right now, or you can head over to the website. The information uh, is there as well. Or just go to the darn App Store or the uh, Google Play Store and just do a search for Airline Pilot Guy, and you'll find the free app with uh, no advertising. So please uh, check it out if you, if you want. And uh, speaking of social media, Steph. I'll get to the social media in just a second because I just okay. remembered I had one more uh, PSA slash announcement to make. Um, just a reminder that Saturday, June 16th, if you're going to be in the uh, D.C. area at the Udvar Hazi Center, that's the Innovations in Flight and also the Airplane Geeks uh, 500th episode celebration or something along those lines. I believe. Very good point. So just wanted to say that. And then... Um, to interact with us more on the social media, head over to Twitter. Our handle's at APG Crew. Find all of our individual Twitter information pinned to the top of that page. You can also go over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. All kinds of good information from the community and us there as well. And 
some information about meetups as well as on Slack. Slack. And Hillel has something to say about that. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and Plain Tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Kilo, at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1. Hotel India, one one Echo 1. And see you in Slack. Thank you very much, Hillel. And until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care. God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Adios. Good day.